right, folks, welcome back to another fantastical episode of your favorite podcasting show, The Boombastic Cast, where you come for all your pop culture, film, indie, big budgeted, throwback, futuristic, everything. All that everything? was all the Every- television and television <laughs> and the TV and some comedy, you know, all that great stuff. You know, we got. We got a great episode for everybody. They have been looking forward to this episode for a long time. Um, this is a gentleman I kind of met via the social webs many years ago, maybe even in the MySpace days, like forever. Uh, one good thing to say about social media amongst all the bad things is that you are able to reach out and touch people um, a lot easier this way. Shoot a message, you know what I mean? You can communicate with somebody. You don't have to take an airplane and cross your fingers the whole time you're going to bump into them at that coffee shop in California. <laughs> but, uh, reach out and touch your brother, you know what I mean? Be able yeah. to get some cool stories, uh, you know what I mean, of the of the rise. So... Without, uh, I guess we should probably announce this guest, right? Yeah, yeah, I totally agree on that. Now, for anybody out there that's never looked at the t- the headline title of this show, you know, you, you may you may not know yet. So we'll keep you we'll keep you at keep, keep you at arms bay here, letting you know what the deals is and such like that. You know what I mean? Okay, I'm with it. So, with that being said, folks, the great Keith Coogan. Is in the building from the, such films as Adventures in Babysitting. Don't tell Mum the babysitter is dead. He's, he loves babysitting movies. Um, and the Fox and the Hound, Toy Soldiers, The Gentleman. He was re, he was in Jay and Silent Bob's reboot recently, which was a lot of time, a lot of fun. You know, he's in Python. You know what I mean? With our boy Robert England over there doing a big style. You know, he got to work with the great Jewel Schumacher. You know, friends with Corey Haim, the late great Rest in Peace. Um, television shows up the Yazoo. You know what I mean? Um, doing it. You know what I mean? Really doing it. Doing it big. All the way since a child, you know, I know his grandfather was a real famous child actor. He was the kid, the kid from the kid with Charlie Chaplin. Um, also, for, you know, Uncle Fester in the 1960s Adams Family TV show. Uh, I think a lot of everybody kind of gets down with that in one form or another. It's funny, he'd later go on to work with, uh, he'd work with an Aston too when he did uh, Toy Soldiers. He worked with Sean Aston. Yeah. And Sean Aston's father was Gomez Adams. It's a kind of fun tie-in right there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, he also worked with uh, Will Wheaton, I believe, in um, Toy Soldiers too. also. Yeah, he's also with him and Will Wheaton, I think, are both of my favorite. I think Will Wheaton's all, also in that episode of Tales from the Crypt that I love a lot. I'm pretty sure he is. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. So kick back, throw your feet on, on the ottoman, not on the table, not on the kitchen table, no boots on the kitchen table. But uh, sit back, enjoy, pour yourself a gold glass of lemonade, and uh, on a Sunday evening, or whatever evening you want to listen to this, we record on the Sunday evening. (laughs) But the great Keith Coogan. Boom. Boom. Fantastic. Hello. Hello. Hey, how are you doing? Hey guys, let me get. Uh, I need to see what I look like. This is what's important. Me, 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 me. Oh, there's my video. Okay. There we go. Ooh, there you um, go. I need a close up, Mr. DeMille. All right. That's <laughs> kind of okay. 
How's the hair? I feel very Dennis <laughs> Miller right now. Yeah, yeah. Hello. Hi, guys. Hey. hey, how are you doing? Oh, amazing. My coffee is brewing, and so I'll just step away, obviously, to get the coffee, because that's yeah, important. Yeah. And oh, uh, wait, let me get my key light going. Hold on one second. I could do things better. Where's a grip when you need them? All right, one second, <laughs> one second. And, ooh, I got my fancy light. All right. Hi, guys. I love it. What is up? Where are you at? Where are you at? We're Boston. Well, Matthew, yeah. I'm uh, south of Boston. He's a little north of Boston. Yeah. I'm loving you know, the background stuff. hiding out uh, for one week in Boston. Yeah. <laughs> coffee is almost ready. Well, hi, everybody, and thank you for watching. Sorry I'm being rude. I need my coffee. No worries. <laughs> oh, yeah. Absolutely. Totally okay. understand. <laughs> yeah, no worries, man. Nice. So, uh, yeah, man, uh, nice collection behind you there. Me and too. I like your screen uh, <laughs> uh, solution to the backdrop. That's good. Thank you, good. thank you. Thanks. Alex keeps it very plain, and I keep it filled. So we, we mess with people's eyes. The right eye sees the clutterness, and the left eye sees the, uh, <laughs> the clean The, the truth is you just don't white. want to see what's behind this curtain. It's, uh, I'm, I'm too lazy to fix all my mess. Yeah, <laughs> there's a bunch of there's a bunch of bodies hanging up like Tesha Chainsaw Massacre behind. Hugs. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> Don't tell anybody, Matt. Come on. I'll delete it. I'll take it out. <laughs> Don't worry. You're safe. <laughs> there we go. Oh yeah, I got to get my uh, my sign. Hold on, my sign is all out of whack. I gotta get show my damn Pac-Man sign. All right, cool. My it. wife, Miss Pac-Man nut. And as we built our little home home arcade, I got the cabinet, yeah, barricade, and then three of these. These were Home Shopping Network, QVC, their countertop arcade one-ups. Yeah. So they're not like the ones in Target or whatever. They're um, And they won't mount on those bases. They just go right on a count, but they're really solid. I recommend bigger? them because they're one ninety nine Earl Shive. <laughs> <laughs> I love the arcade. When I seen them come back, I was so excited. You know what I mean? They just oh, give yeah. you a good. They give you a good feel when you see them. You're like, oh, yeah. You know I mean? Is that uh, records I see over the right shoulder? Oh yeah, probably. Uh, well, now um, La La Land. That's just sheet music for okay. records or somewhere. Else. Oh yeah, they're over by the front door. I just have. We just have a few. We actually got a cute little suitcase, pink, you know, record player. Yeah, Haven't yeah. played one record on it. Probably got it like <laughs> three, four years ago. But uh, I like to collect that 80s sound of course. on vinyl. Because Depeche Mode, Duran Duran, The Cure, they just sound so great on vinyl. Yeah. Can't tell you. Oh, yeah. Everything does, I think. Yeah. Yeah, honestly, I think, I think, uh, I think uh, Keith's got you beat, uh, Matt, with, you know, with, with the cool backdrop, man. I, I awesome. think he might be, uh, might be uh, upstaging you on that, that respect. I love that gigantic <laughs> cassette. Well, this, this is not the man cave. This is my wife's arcade. So, <laughs> yeah, the arcade thing, like, I've tried playing on those little joysticks. Yeah. And, uh, art, you know, Sega flashback discs, which are pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good. Um, but nothing beats, like, the these one-ups just feel like it, you know, takes you right back. And, like, uh, there's a purist that are like, you can't, you gotta get a cabinet and a real thing, and the arcade one-ups are crap, and you know why they're crap? And I'll give you 17 ways, and I go, well, they're fun, so go to hell. Yeah, yeah. I used to work with a guy that refurbished them. 
and I was always trying to get him. Was it Wild and Crazy? What's the game where you drive the car and shoot the gun at the same time? I think it's called Wild and Crazy or something like that. I was trying to get him to get me one of those. Yeah, back in the day. I want Operation Wolf so bad. Yep. Um, Zombies Ate My Neighbors. Classic. Uh, Defender and Robotron. You got to have some of those. Of course. I see you got one of the bar, the bar table uh, arcades off to right behind you. I love those. Like, I remember always going to the bar with the old man, and you'd have that. That'd be like your table. Would be the Miss Pac Man or something like that. You know what I mean? I love those tables. They're they're those are the best. Oh yeah, and the uh, the little barrel arcade, the two player sit down. Those were always in like Red Onion and Black Angus and those skeevy places my parents went to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and Black Angus is still around. Love you. Love you to death. Yeah. I enjoy Wait, I, uh, Black Angus roast beef on my sandwich. Mm. <laughs> we had a little restaurant in our neighborhood. Uh, one gas station, one supermarket, one restaurant. at little town of uh, 15,000 people. Uh, Malibu. Uh, but the poor part of Malibu. And at Trankis Restaurant, they had a bar attached. And uh, it had... Room for three stand-ups and, like, two sit-downs in the bar proper. And the stand-ups were kind of up a little bit near the lobby where you come in to check in, you know, for your tables or whatever. But just behind the wall so it didn't bother people. And they started with Donkey Kong, Defender, and Tron was there. They had that gnarly Tron machine there. Yeah, yeah. Have you seen that documentary? Is it King of Kong? Is that what yes. it is? Uh, yes. With that, the villain, I did the villain in that documentary. I forget his name right now. Oh, Billy Mitchell or something like that. And he's like the greatest villain of all time. He takes himself so serious. It's the greatest. I'm like, fascinated I'm- with speed runs, but I like to do speed runs on ridiculous games like uh, Red Dead Redemption 2 or uh, Cyberpunk. Yeah. Try a speed run on Cyberpunk. <laughs> <laughs> I, gotta I got my. Rocking my um, Rick and Morty cyberpunk. Nice. Happily bought for me. I I like that shirt. Next day. Ding dong. That is a cool shirt. So you you always a video game kid from the beginning, from when it first popped on the scene? Kind of obsessed. Um, You know, I got an Atari uh, 2600 and um, probably in 78. Yeah, maybe 79. Uh, probably for my birthday of 79, so in January. And um, I think we got it from <laughs> this, like, ridiculous appliance dealer downtown with those, like, crazy Eddie signs. Yeah. And uh, it was cheap. It was $99. And I remember that was a really big deal for my parents because our rent was, like, $400. So $99. And then these games, my mom's like, these games are $30 a piece. So I, I had, I had um, done the Waltons, and I'd done – like 18 episodes of the Waltons. And my mom was like, yeah, that was pretty good money. So you can have an Atari. And I had skydiver and tank or battle, uh, uh, Pong and all the, you know, the, the original one came yeah. with the rotating one and everything. Great, great. And then I just, I would rent, I would rent Atari 2600 games from <laughs> one of the video stores. They had a whole rack of them. Yeah. And, um, remember, uh, noticeably, Activision games were remarkably better programmed, yes. way more fun. What was the um, dentist one with the teeth and the? You were a 
tube of toothpaste and you could fight plaque attack. Plaque attack yeah, yeah, was yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Fun game. Um, you just noticed those weird things and you didn't know the behind the scenes of creators fighting with each other and like, you know, yeah. ownership of companies and people branching off and starting their own thing. But Gary Kitchen was a genius. Yeah. Great sound. That was the first time you started to know video game designers' names and yeah. you had the crash because, you know, I got ET for Christmas that year. And it really, truly was a horrible game. And you try to like it. And you try, and you go, you know, this is just awful. And you pop in River Raid again. And uh, so I can understand that they made more cartridges than existed in the console. So we pick up a few years later with Nintendo and we get the Super System with the robot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it has, you know, Duck Hunt and it's great. Yeah. It's that thing carried for a while. And then I found Sega and I became a Sega boy for, for until PlayStation. Um, I have Sega, Saturn, Dreamcat, 32X, CD-ROM. I've owned 90% of the titles on every Sega system. And I even had the 8-bit with the um, 3D glasses Yeah. Uh, for Harrier, Super Harrier. And uh, dude, just loved, loved it. Played, spent far too much. I, I handed all my video games to my younger brother. He's about 12 years younger than me at one point. And um, it was a box of three systems. And uh, it, it it totaled up to six grand mm. if you counted like 40, 50 bucks a game plus the systems. Plus, I had the steering wheel for um, Daytona. Uh, it was about $6,000 worth of video games. Original, I gave my little brother, he kept the Atari and all of those, which is pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, I believe it, man. There's some games, there's, uh, there's games that go for like ridiculous money out there. You know, there's a huge market for that stuff. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. They just said an unboxed copy of Zelda went for $180,000 or something like that. <laughs> Jeez. Wonder if it's selling. I, I, that makes me sad if that's selling. That's insanity. They're gonna put it on display, though. I think. I think they put it in. It put it in a case. They're not gonna open that up and play it. Open it up and play that bitch. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, oh, what's our PG rating? Oh, on we're show? we're rated X over here. No worries. Yeah, sure. X. I already X-rated. stumbled across a line. What's that line? I feel well, bad a bitch for... is a female dog. That's, that's true. true. <laughs> Cater to everybody. The feline. Well, I go to the Bart Simpson defense. No, I can say that bitch is a dog. <laughs> it, it's a, a lot of Sega people they go into PlayStation. It's funny that crossover when you talk to people. Yes, like it, they don't and want to go to Nintendo again. I want to say it's controller based because yeah. I tried um, Xbox and think and it never worked out. I I just love the three button or yeah, Sega was that three button and then it became six button. Yep, but um, yeah, when they went to the dual joystick for Sega for like what PlayStation two and three, they started to go yeah. crazy with the joystick and triggers and all that stuff. Perfect design for control. And cause some of the games you play, you have to do these machinations. I got to hold this while I'm taking this and it, and it becomes physical memory. And I think Red Dead Redemption two did it the best where it feels like you're drawing a gun and putting it away and drawing and drawing a bow. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's definitely a weird like physical divide within gamers where like there's the people that want that like that more technical controller, and then there's people that like that the simple Nintendo style. You know what I mean? There was a uh, Sega game, AHX Attack Helicopter, and it had two modes. It had easy mode where you can kind of just go up in a helicopter, and it automatically hovers, and you just move around. 
And it, then it had expert mode, which I couldn't stay aloft for more than 10 seconds. You had to really work every single control. <laughs> At flight simulators, remember when those became huge? I was also in the computers introduced with the Trash 80, the TRS-80 in public schools, and then got an Apple IIc uh, in 86. And, and our school had started to get the Apple IIe's, uh, tons of them, the big brown box. And yeah. um, so I took computer science in school first semester. Second semester, I was the TA because I was the one that knew how to load all the games and set them all up <laughs> and um, totally, totally raped. We had a Taipei contest. Do you guys remember Taipan or Taipei? It's where yeah, you, Taipan, yeah. you know, go from port to port and you have cannons mm-hmm. and you pirates and you've got <laughs> silk and well, opium. If you're dealing silk, opium, gunpowder, <laughs> all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And um, nobody in the class knew that while you're in battle, if you held down the space bar, it went boop, 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 and the battle was over instantly. Everyone else is cycling a 30 seconds of going through battle. Yeah. So I didn't have any other strategy but regular random port. Actually, I love to sequentially hit every port and go back and get thrown off by typhoons. And <laughs> they're at a few hundred thousand. I'm sitting on like 1.8 million by the end of the period. They just had no idea just because I knew how to kind of make the game move faster. Yeah. What a fun time when video games were allowed in school. I remember the Oregon Trail game. We, had, oh, yeah. we, we played Prince Dude. of Persia. Yeah, we played Prince of Persia in our school, which was weird. Yeah, you're I absolutely did. right. We had also uh, was it Quetzalcoatl or Montezuma? It was an Apple II game. Yeah, it had a little color. It had like 16 bit color or no 8 bit color. Yeah, and it was uh, kind of an Indiana Jones ripoff. Yeah. It's weird that the school kind of just allowed that to come in, so to speak. You know, it was like they they, they seen the new technology coming. I, I assume they probably knew they were eventually going to use it for educational purposes. So they wanted to kind of introduce it in a fun way, probably. You know what I mean? Yeah, because it, it jumped right into basic programming. And um, what is it called? Logon or Logo? Yeah. The one with the turtle. Yeah. You can do graphics with it, but you, yeah. you're basically taking ahead of a turtle and telling it where to draw and what to draw. Yeah, but it was easy yeah. to program. Yeah. Um, and I immediately was programming at home. And, like, I'd make the whole um, dialogue from War Games between Joshua <laughs> and anybody at the computer. And if you didn't respond right, it would kick you out. And if you did, it would go forward. And that yeah, was a big nerd. Hey, it's all good. Look, just think about how, how far computers have come. I remember when I was a kid, like, you would have to, you'd open up the computer and you have to put a hard disk into it to punch in a code just to like open it just to like start the computer you remember those days yeah that was, that was too much now it's just a pro you now you just think it and your computer turns on <laughs> to play games on the trs 80 there was a tape cassette drive yeah. <laughs> and I you put the things. tape cassette and you load you type load ma'am or whatever and you hit play and sure yeah. enough this thing would load in there and you could run it amazing I never knew how to save. That was the problem. It was very hard to save and know where that file was going and how to pull it back later in another game. So you take the pain to load something on a TRS-80 and you're like, that's the game and that's what we're sticking to. Don't turn off the computer. <laughs> yeah. I got a I got a friend of mine right now that's like, he, like he's going back and getting all these older systems and he's big into the Commodore right now. And he's got like the little, little floppy disk that you put it in and like you can get, get halfway into the game you got to switch out the floppy disk. If the next floppy disk doesn't work, you're just like screwed. It's like technology, you know? 
I had friends that were um, sports, real big sports people. I'm not that big sports. I'm a Dodger fan, Laker fan, Kings fan. I'm an L.A., you know. Yeah, yeah I'm a Boston guy. Season. That's why I wear the hat. So yeah. We had NHL and all of the, you know, hockey games. But then we had a baseball one that had a full season. But you couldn't turn off your game. But you could have multiple players pick teams. And when the game came up, they could play it. Or you could just have the computer play it, whatever. But it was a full season. But you couldn't turn off the Sega Genesis. So I had moved on to the Saturn and I had the Saturn set up on a big TV. And I had a smaller TV on the floor on like a a milk crate with just the Genesis underneath it for a few months. One summer, we rocked a season of baseball. And everywhere someone came over, we're like, you're Cincinnati? You're up. All right, come on, sit down. Uh, That was a weird way to get around that. Yeah. Nice. being a part of some really gigantic movies and TV shows during the time of, of all the video game come up, did you ever find yourself in a cool situation where you got it, maybe an advanced copy of a system or a game? You know, I don't know if it's like, oh. you know what I mean? I, I want to say the one that like directly was Zaxxon and a, a commercial for a cereal called Havsies because it was half rice grain and half wheat grain. Remember Havsies? Yeah. And there was a commercial I did and it, it was a contest, and if you won the contest, you got a full-size video game. And the game was Zaxxon, and I was familiar with it. They also had Super Zaxxon, like, and I got to play it. What was funny, on the commercial, they had each kid, they needed somebody to shoot the insert of the game. They go, we need someone to play this so that we can end, like, a cool part. And I'm like, I know how to play it. And, like, every kid said we could play it. So they gave us auditions to play the video game. And I'm just sitting on a quarter for like 20 minutes. And they're they're like, okay, Keith's the one that's going to do it. So in the commercial, when they cut to the game, that's really me playing. <laughs> but I like no, um, I got a few toy prototypes and stuff. But video games was not, um, yeah, I never, never. And I never did a voice like Will Wheaton has done Grand Theft Auto and other yeah. games. Uh, I had a friend, Phil Tanzini, who's in all the like Modern Warfare and um, uh, Snake. Metal yeah. Gear Solid games and stuff like that. I totally want to get into voices. That would be awesome. That would be cool. I figure. I figure in the in the, the, the time of the product placement and stuff right there. I figured that the video game companies would almost shower the production and systems, so they'd put them in the movie as well as bring them home, and their kids would love them and talk about them and stuff. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, uh, yeah. You know. A lot of movie giveaways for like promotional materials. I have a little coffin from Evil Dead Two that's got like a fake oh. finger in it. Where you can stick your finger in and it looks like a bloody finger when you open the coffin. Um, But this is stuff from like 87, 88, 89. And admittedly, there were some some cool movies there. But the later 80s, it tended to get kind of for me. It was hit or miss. It was either something really, really subversive and not really a main studio release. But most of the main studio releases had gone through this kind of a, what did somebody call it? Directed like. Uh, smooth mixed house paint like (laughs) like blended well it's very like hits the four quadrants and the writing is you know audience can predict every turn um but that not that that's bad it's the filmmaking had understood its language by the late 80s yeah 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 no i feel that yeah Uh, you just brought up a commercial uh for the video game i know that i believe that i read the first thing that you ever did acting wise was a commercial for mickey d's yeah, for Mickey D's, uh, first thing I ever did was uh, non-union. I was a stand-in on a McDonald's commercial. And um, 
so they're lighting me and I get up to the counter with my tray and they like put a, you know, or whatever. And they put a Big Mac in front of me and I'm like, Ooh, a Big Mac. And the director goes, Oh no, him, we'll use this kid instead. And so the mother of the other kid was like, now nah, you hired my kid and you got it. And technically they're right. Yeah. So the director said, you know, I'll use you for something else. And meanwhile, my mom is kind of upset that we never got paid for it. Mm-hmm. So was it union? They're like, you weren't here. You're not on the books. Like, what do you, what pay? So my mom asked around town and got hooked up with an agent that I read for uh, immediate, like pretty much immediate. I think I was an extra in a coast soap commercial and it was a school bus driver that all the kids are screaming, but then they go in the shower with coast soap and they're just like heaven. And I think my left shoulder was in that in like the back of the school <laughs> yeah. bus. So that was my first time on camp. I'm five. I'm maybe, you know, so I turn six, I get my screen actors guild card. And Denny Harris, the director of all of those McDonaldlands commercials, um, called me back. And I did a series of four commercials for McDonald's. And I did every single thing except for Levi's and Coca-Cola. I mean, I did Ford and Texaco and Toyota and um, Rice Krispies, Sugar Smacks, Corn Pops, uh, tons of Mattel toys, Sucker Man. Yeah. Firefox, which was these remote controlled, pretty big remote controlled cars. Um, I did commercials for He-Man. I did Manny Faces commercial. <laughs> Sometimes we would sneak the pro, they're like the toys in production yet, but this is the prototype. So you're playing the prototype in the commercial and they're like, we don't need it after the commercial. Go ahead. So I had all these half built, hot glued, hot glue gun <laughs> versions yeah. of these toys. Nice. <laughs> So yeah, commercials is a great way to get on a set and get familiar with the terminology and what a mark is and your eyeline and a light and like kind of how to be on a set. And um, and then I got a Chips episode. Yeah. A little. It was supposed to be one or two lines, but I hammed it up and the directors kept going more, improvise, more, more. And I'm just, I just steal every, it's, it's shameless scene stealing. But I didn't know <laughs> at the time. Though, yeah. You know, you know, you got to so do then I wound four episodes of chips over the years, different characters until we did the Brat Patrol ones in the last season. And I was a little glasses wearing nerd in the Brat Patrol wearing a little chips outfit. Those were, those were fun. Um, And, uh, and a lot of eighties TV and stuff after the commercials. Yeah. Any ones that you, that you like more, you did a whole bunch of TV, which I love. We love TV over here, of course. Um, Any ones that that you want to dive into more than any others? That you grow good memories from, or oh wow, I mean, great memories from um, all of them. Uh, there are some also huge misfires or ones that were never really critically acclaimed shows, and there's no shame at that point in the 70s and 80s. You had a lot of old movie horrors coming back to TV for a paycheck yeah, and um, and getting it. And my grandfather had been through his m- movie career and wound up with a comeback on television with the Adams family as uncle Fester. So there's no shame in doing TV to build your career up to get to do movies. So between 76 and 86, I did a hundred commercials and 50 TV shows. And uh, the standouts were Mork and Mindy, the last episode of Mork and Mindy with Jonathan Winters and and Robert Williams, Uh, Laverne and Shirley, Uh, heavy on the Shirley time. She played dual characters. She played, a, a woman that looked like her her new date's ex-girlfriend. So it's Cindy Williams in a blonde wig. And because they were kind of dueling at the time, their agents were counting lines in the episode. 
And Cindy Williams was playing double parts. They had to boost up Laverne's part in that episode. So I wound up getting babysat by Laverne, kidnapped by Lenny and Squiggy. And it's an amazing episode. And I, everybody I got to see, Carmine, you know, everybody. Um, and then Knight Rider was particularly fun for me because I did it. I shot it before any Knight Rider had been on the air. I had seen Knight Rider in, um, special effects magazines or, you know, movie film, more genre, more like Fangoria and stuff started talking about this sci-fi show. And, um, I got it and it was the third episode. It was good day at white rock. And, um, it uh, was shot on the universal back lot in the, uh, uh, clock tower square. Um, and, uh, it, uh, David Hasselhoff was awesome. He was a big kid. He was having so much fun doing the show and he, him and I just played, we would play, we'd sit in the car and he'd be pushing buttons. He's like turbo. And he talked really fast. I'm on turbo on turbo. Then he hit Norm and he goes, Norm, I am now Norm. I am Norm. He was absolutely the greatest guy to work with. Uh, And I did like the cool ones like love boat and fantasy Island. And as a kid, you kind of like, Oh, I'm going to go to fantasy Island or I'm going to go on the love boat. No, you're going to go to stage 20 on the 20th century Fox lot. And, um, you know, but you're used to that. A lot of time in the Waltons, I did a little house on the prairie, which I get a lot of notice for. I was a blind child that wound up singing towards the end of the episode, and it's not even my voice. Um, so I did. I had a lot of, and I did a lot of pilots for TV series, weird ones like uh, Norma Ray, the television series with Cassie. I think that might, yeah. Um, I did a series called Super Train, which almost bankrupted NBC. <laughs> That was one of the largest budget series made at the time. They spent, you know, it was a $10 million budget for their like pilot. And they spent $5 million on the model train and the stages and the sets. It was like the big, big bus, but on a nuclear train that could go from LA to Chicago in 32 hours. Um, I'm like, that's not that fast. I could make it from LA to New Orleans in 36 hours. So how, how many stops is this super train making? It should have um, put a cape on the train. Train needed a cape, super train, <laughs> and a mask. <laughs> we just lost William Smith, who was a classic Western actor. Yes, Western. Yes. And um, he did an episode of, or the the, I think it was the pilot episode for Tales of the Apple Dumpling Gang, the Gunshy series. And uh, he had broken ribs while we were shooting it. He got thrown from a horse or involved in a stunt fight or something, and he had taped up ribs, but he didn't wow. tell anybody. And there's a part where this guy, this like mean evil and we he's the sweetest guy in the world but he's the big bad guy he kidnaps the two kids and he picks me and i think it was bridget anderson at the time up um or maybe sarah gilbert it was sarah it was sarah gilbert he picks us up under his arms like this and is carrying us while we're struggling and kicking through like door kicking in doorways at the end of one take and we're in this like kind of upstairs set on the old disney lot they used to have a western um really cool western street and we, he puts us down and they cut and he goes, oh, oh. And I'm like, what, what's up, Mr. You know, Smith? And he goes, oh, yeah, I got a couple of cracked ribs here. And I'm like, what? How are they letting you do this? How are they? He goes, no, no, no don't tell anybody, kid. So, <laughs> you know, I, in the 70s, there were movies like Hooper and Stuntman, the Stuntman. And yeah. there were like that men's men, Smokey and the Bandit, Magnum P.I. mustache. You'll notice I got my 80s stash going. I love it, yeah. 
that's when men were men. You know, they yeah. it was a thing where they were for you know they it was more of probably a worry of losing work. You know what I mean? Where they were like, well, we don't want to say we're hurt because they might get somebody else type deal. You know, can't show vulnerability. Exactly. Yeah, it's trickiness. Yeah, rest in peace. I heard he just passed. Great actor. Yeah, yeah. And he's getting a lot of love and like almost more love than I see huge, huge stars get. Huge, huge stars get about four hours. Yeah. Next day, nothing. You just see nothing about him. And they'll get like 24 hours of the news cycle and it's over. And I see him continuing to get a lot of love, which I think is great. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's good. You know, it's the there's like a remembering process that comes into play, which is nice because there'll be a group of people that have never even heard of him that'll be able to be turned on to his films and his work. You know what I mean? It's well, I just had a thought, like we've got Chris Pratt and uh, he's got like a few movie franchise, Jurassic Park. He's got Guardians of the Galaxy. He's got uh, the Tomorrow War, which they're going to make a sequel. But these actors were talking about like William Smith. You look at his credits and you go, oh my God, like he was in the biggest ones of the day. He's yeah. you know, more of a baddie character actor kind of guy. Yeah, um, but like in context, they had some you know, strong actors that kind of um, brought a lot of baggage with them. They yeah. were known for certain parts and roles in Westerns. You cast them in something, the moment they step on screen, the whole audience is like, oh, I know what that guy's all about. Yeah. Yeah. He's definitely one of them for sure. Yeah, it's cool that, uh, yeah, it's definitely cool. Definitely cool. And that's the thing. It's like, if you're going to be an overall fan of cinema in general, you got to celebrate every, every, you know, generation of it from, from the get go. And, you know, you're, 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 when you do these films, they're there forever. They age, I guess, but they don't, you know what I mean? Films, it's weird. So he should be just like he made the movie yesterday to be celebrated today. I mean, I mean, it's great when uh, when when you focus on some of these actors that you know that they keep on showing up and playing these character parts. A lot of people don't know who they are and know their names, but you see, as soon as you see them on screen, you know exactly who they are, and you're like, "Oh yeah, I saw them on this movie and that TV series." I love that we've still got the same um, kind of thing: video games, great movies, TV. You know, a little change with the coronavirus and the, you know, theaters shutting down. Yeah. And everyone adjusting to, like, every time you make that decision whether to pay for a Disney Premier Access movie, you, like, start going through the numbers. You're like, really? If it's you and your wife, it's really only $15 a ticket. That's what it would be in the theater. And then it's cheaper to make the popcorn and the snacks at home. And you can pause it and go to the bathroom and rewind. And you've got a huge TV now. So it's like, what's the... Well, I mean, that's, it's ignoring kind of this uh, phenomenon that we had for 100 years, mm-hmm. you know, from uh, the early 1900s till a year ago, movies, going to the movie was just this very specific, special thing. Right. There's people that go to movies alone mm-hmm. and I do. So there's nothing wrong with that. I love it. Yeah. Um, so that, that was a very radical change. And I think it's as radical as film itself, silent movie talkies mm-hmm. color widescreen each like technical thing digital that changed a lot but now we're changing really in distribution how we consume it binge watching right five six years ago you never heard the term binge watching right well even you take tvs even bigger than movies now yeah. you know what i mean mm. 
like Westworld was the first one that I really went, oh, this is written and shot feature quality most episodes. Yeah. And um, after a while, you get strung along J.J. Abrams style and you kind of check out. I did. I checked out of Westworld after a while. But yeah, I also yeah. was like seven or eight when the original Westworld and Future World came out. Yeah. And then they were playing on cable or on TV when I was 10 or 11 years old. They play like on Saturday mornings. For yeah. kids, they go, here's Roman world for kids. And I'm like, yeah, this is a great film. Yeah. And a parent will walk by and go, hey, is that Yul Brenner? And you're like, yeah. He's like the worst robot. They're like, oh, no, he's in Magnificent Seven and King and I. And we're like, Wait, I don't know what you're talking about. He's a really evil robot. Yeah. So Yul Brenner <laughs> means something different to me than it did my grandparents and parents' generation. So where do you think the state of cinema is going, like, theater-wise? I feel like, you know, we're not going to lose theaters. We'll have a lot of art art house theaters. You can go see throwback movies and independent cinema. Um, and they'll always have kind of a, you know, it did take a hit with that digital thing, especially with COVID. Yeah, you got to see Julia Marchese's Out of Print. She's got a great film on um, each theater has to convert to digital, and mm-hmm. it's $100,000, $150,000 to get the projector bulbs are pretty expensive um and then getting the rights to archive films sometimes there isn't a digital print available blah 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 um it's tightening the kind of restrictions like a film an actual print of film floating around somewhere is is great and and i there's one of adventures of babysitting they've been using for you know in-person screenings a 35 millimeter print and we know this print. I know every where the cigarette burns yeah. are and all that stuff. <laughs> and the noise pops. And I'm like, and it's a beautiful, no scratches. It's awesome. There's another print that's just destroyed. It's got yeah. um, discoloration on one of the reels, mm. really bad scratches. And so it looks like they trimmed one of the reel changes. So it just really jumps bad. Yeah. But I have a lot of warmth for that print. Um, yeah, of course. I'm- you know, and you look at when you see movies released in the 80s, You'll have a range of between 800 to 1,000 to maybe 1,200 theaters for a huge release. Today, we're still talking 2,000, 3,000 theaters. Um, And also the economics have changed with the multiplexes. Because I think they started doing this at Universal City Walk for the Cineplex Odeon there uh, first. They'd have like 13 theaters and they'd have Jurassic Park out and it would sell out in two, three theaters and they wouldn't have a lot of ticket sales for other films. And they could turn a key, get another digital rights key, open another theater and go, we just added a showtime. And before you would have to have a physical print duplication of the cost of making a 35 millimeter print and distributing that to 1200 theaters doesn't exist anymore. There's a cost to make a digital capture, you know, digital cinema package. But even that, they're like, don't you have a quick time? It's just easier if we just play it off a quick time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the whole digital age where we're going is playing a part in Quentin Tarantino's decision to only make one more film. Yeah. I, I think that that's, that's really a thing, though. I think that that plays a big part in it. Well, um, I, I, it's funny. I've looked at how what he said on that and, I, and kind of the way that you phrased it just now. After you work on movies... And especially if you do a lot of like B movie grindhouse exploitation, I did a lot of like 
um, what snake movie, a surf movie, a ski movie, a karate movie, and they're all for low budget, you know, film companies fun. in LA. They're fun, yeah. They just everybody inevitably winds up working for them. But um, but you're working with your friend, like uh, PM Entertainment had done. Oh no, UFO had done, which is Tim Olamp's company, had done um, Python. Yes. With Billy Zabka, Will Wheaton. Mm. I mean, it's old home week. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, wait, what was the question? Where were we? Oh, we're, I t- we're, it was a side, just a side question of Tarantino, uh, the digital age, oh, yeah. helping so, take him down. When you're on a set, even the grips, even the cameraman, you're applying the same techniques, the same aesthetic that, that you know, everybody really has. But you're doing the same job, yeah. just on different projects. Over and over. At one point, you start hearing this quote, and the newer people aren't. They don't, they don't understand it, but you go, you know, we're just working on one. It's all one movie. It's all one movie. The art of making movies, once it is captured on celluloid or digital and then turned into a film, a narrative, it joins this kind of universe of films. So they all kind of have a relationship to each other. And you see how um, certain character actors play the same kind of character. They'll come back. You know, in other projects, like I just mentioned with William Smith, where it's like, oh, I recognize him as an Agent Coulson type. <laughs> um, he's pretty much always going to play that kind of type in a shorthand for an audience. Um, that it is all one movie. Because my essence, you know, I'm acting, but I'm also, my acting is using as much of me as I can or finding as much of the character and then kind of messing with the other actors. I just want to make it really personal and like, cause the audience feels that they go, they yeah. get, they call it, Oh, they have chemistry or charisma. And it's like, no, I'm just getting under the skin and getting that flash of like, you're an asshole in their eyes. I'm like <laughs> that works. I love messing with other actors on set. Um, and it does become like, you're just working on, you've always just been working on the same project for 40 years. So when I hear Tarantino say he's going to make one more movie, how many parts? Yeah, good question. Yeah. How many parts? One more movie. One more movie. Does that, but that doesn't, I don't know. It, because of that phrase that I've heard on the set, it's all just one movie. Yeah. I feel like there could be an out for him there. Yeah. <laughs> he goes, actually, really, I don't know. The, the Vega Brothers, this is really an expansion. It's an added act. It's Kill Bill one and a half, so it doesn't count as my, you know, Fellini nine and a half. So he's going to get away with some crap like that. I can see him counting four bellhops. Is he counting um, Grindhouse? I guess he does count Grindhouse, right? Yeah, with Death Proof. Death Proof and count Death Proof, yeah. See, that's a tough call because for me, Grindhouse was one movie. No, I agree. I agree. I went and saw it in LA and it was one movie and it was one of the greatest like three and a half four hours I've ever had in a theater yeah uh, I spent a lot of time at the Vista I mean at the New Art at the New Bev when I was you know in the 80s and stuff when it was the Tovalds and um, it uh, they had the same clips of film you know how Tarantino has those uh, interstitials and let's go to the lobby and like yep. the rated R with the the type those I remember seeing those exact same clips of the actual clips of film in theaters here in LA that Tarantino has as a production and used in the work print for Grindhouse and his other films. Yeah. And that, that's the kind of, cause he has a lot of cool, um, 
obscure and expensive movie memorabilia. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's He's like, oh, I have this. I've got, you know, this is the cape from that. This is, here's Robert Shaw's body. Here's the, he's like got <laughs> actual things that are cool. Yeah. Well, that, that's the sad thing about Tarantino leaving is like he makes these great films, but you got to look at the aspect of the film fan that he is and the cool things he adds to the films like Grindhouse. Like who else would make him and who else would make Grindhouse, him and Rodriguez? Who else would do, you know, take the show on the road with it, like with a hateful eight, how it went to the art house theaters and it had like the, the pamphlet you get. Who, uh, who directed Poltergeist? Toby Hooper. Mm-hmm. They yes. like to say Steven Spielberg. Right. But... Now, who, who, Battery's not included. That's a George Lucas. Or is it Lucas or Spielberg? That's Spielberg. I, they produced it, I believe. Yeah, I think Spielberg they produced, produced it. it. Yeah. But George Lucas didn't direct it. No, I don't think but so. It's kind of, but it's still a George Lucas kind of bit. Like, you know what I mean? You start yeah. to associate... Like Willow could be Ron Howard, but it's in my mind, it's more Luke. You know what I mean? There's well, like certain I think, things. Exactly. I know exactly. So when he says he's not going to direct another movie, doesn't mean he's not going to executive produce or write one or freaking do a extended limited run TV show. Yeah. We're yeah. going to get more Tarantino. And he's so, seeing, he saw the industry changing that features are going away and it's about long form television. So that guy's got a script that he thought was unpublishable. He thought was unmakeable. And he goes, oh, it's a 19-hour epic that takes place in the Adirondacks. It's about moonshiners. And I go, oh, I'm on board. I've yeah. already paid for the first time. So let me subscribe now. <laughs> oh, yeah. So he is – and and he'll probably metaverse it like um, Stephen King and yep. Derry and, you know um, – what is that new one called? Castle Rock. Thank you. Castle, yeah, so yeah, to yeah. think that Tarantino couldn't pull off a TV version interconnecting every single one of his films and yeah. that he wouldn't do that is absurd. That's true. TV is a good a good medium for him. That's a good platform for him. Because like you said, he could do a 19-hour miniseries for sure. How's he going to do Vanetta Green's daughter's story? Yeah. On a freaking Netflix is how he's going to do it. That's yeah. how we get to see all the other backstories intertwined. Daryl Hannah is still breathing. Yep. So we get some more time with her character. That's true. I mean, he could. He had his thing where he's like he wanted to leave before sixty, and then he had his thing where he said he wanted to leave at ten films. So it's kind of like a, it's it's a weird vibe, you know what I mean? Because he could ride it out for the next twenty years of just doing whatever. I know he wants to do theater as well and write history books on film and uh, you know nonfiction books. Um, but yeah, I'll be curious to see where it goes. You're a, you a Quentin fan, I assume, right? Myself? Yeah. Well, there's two incidences that I'm such a huge fan. One, he had funded a um, re-release of Stairway to Heaven, which was a World War II, a Guy Meets Joe, kind of a afterlife pilot. You know, it's a really cool, like, black and white film, but he had been a part of a foundation that had put on a premiere to raise money for film restoration and stuff. And um, uh, I think I crashed it. Don't ask how. <laughs> Just go to the Santa Monica airport and walk into the party. So I see Uma Thurman. I knew Uma and she goes, we want to meet Quentin. Great. We we're talking to Quentin. And uh, and we had gotten cigars, David off cigars. And uh, he's like, I want to go smoke some back cigar. And they gave us wood matches for it. But he can't smoke anywhere. Like we're in a big airplane hangar. And so I'm like, I'll go smoke a cigar with you. So me and Quentin go out 
to uh, the front, you know, doors of the whole thing. And there's a couple of stand-up ashtrays and the marquee. And so we're smoking our cigars and chatting. And I look up and I notice that his name on marquee is is obviously a paste-over job. It's like, you know, a piece of canvas put over. And it says, so-and-so, Quentin Tarantino, and so-and-so presents Stairway to Heaven. I go, I wonder whose name you're covering up. And he goes, me too. I'm kind of, I go, so uh, we move one of the tall ashtrays over, like, you know, those <laughs> tall ones. And I hold it while Quentin stands on it and climbs up. <laughs> and he climbs up and he lifts it off. And it says Martin Scorsese. <laughs> he puts it back down and he goes, yeah, I'm dead. He was like, Quentin Tinter was dead because he's like, I got, I, my name was now over Martin Scorsese's. <laughs> so that moment. And then uh, in, um, in Glorious Bastards at the theater, they talk about the kid. And I think that that means he knows who Jackie Coogan is. Yeah. He, you know, he knows the story. If he's familiar with the kid, and knowing his knowledge of film. So I, I need to have another conversation with him since I've seen Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. And maybe try to get into that last movie. I would love to see that. That great. would be awesome. For yeah. sure. Let's talk about a little film called Adventures in Babysitting, shall we? <laughs> uh, directorial debut of Christopher Columbus, if I remember correctly, right? Absolutely. He had really legit credits as the writer of Goonies, Gremlins, and Young Sherlock Holmes. So he was a baby Spielberg. He had yet to do Home Alone with John Hughes, so he didn't have that kind of connection yet. But I think that he embodied that John Hughes vibe. I was posting about Adventure Babysitting because it was the 39th anniversary a week ago, and somebody goes, I just love all John Hughes films. And I'm like, John Hughes had nothing to do with it, but we appreciate that because it's in Chicago. Chicago, It rips off Ferris Bueller's by starting at the house taking place all in one day, going to a bunch of things like a French restaurant. We have a musical dance scene, Twist and Shout, Babysitting yeah. Blues. And we beat the parents home just in time. I mean, it's very obviously very, very similar. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so Adventures of Babysitting, we knew going in, it was Touchstone Pictures, Disney. And we're going to get the exact same budget as all the other Touchstone Pictures. You're going to get eight to ten million dollars. That's it. That's that's their formula. It's basically Bloomhouse's formula. Yeah. But Touchstone, by the way, Silver Screen Partners Three, which was the film financier for the Touchstone Pictures projects, is the single most successful film finance company in the world when it existed. It made six hundred percent return on your money. Wow. Because they made ten million dollars, that made twenty five to one hundred million dollars at the box office. Do four a year, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. And so we were included in it and it was healthy on, uh, I mean, filming, it was, you know, big. It was three months, two months in Toronto, uh, a month in Chicago, a week in LA. Um, all the special effects were in camera. They used Vista Vision or in- IntraVision, which is front projection. And uh, you are on a kind of a little bit of a set. And it shows up in dailies the next day. No matte lines, no blue screen, none of that. You can even pan and tilt the camera in the shot. Mm. Um, and uh, we had, you know, made great friends with Anthony Rapp. Uh, uh, still see Maya Bruton at uh, um, autograph signings. And we had a, a screening at the Egyptian Theater of Adventures of Babysitting. And I saw Maya again a couple years ago. Uh, those are the shoes in New York, but married to one of my favorite filmmakers, Guggenheim. 
who had yeah. done uh, It Might Get Loud and Waiting for Superman and fight, one of the best documentary filmmakers in the world. Yeah. So she's busy. Plus, she's on 17 TV shows right now. Um, and uh, and Calvin Levels, who was a Malibu resident. So Joe Gipp, you know, I wound up hanging out with after Adventures of Babysitting. And um, it when it released, here's when I knew it was... Um, it was bigger than I kind of thought. Yeah. On uh, the weekend of release, we got the LA Times, and they'll have a little entertainment section. And really, they'll only do color for, like, the Sunday edition and really big-budget movies. And we open it up, and there it is, the the middle section, two-page, full-page. So you open the paper, and it's the entire thing with reviews and everything. They print every single theater in Showtime in there. And there we are hanging off the building. And I went, oh, 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 they're promoting the heck out of this. <laughs> and the ads ran that. There was one ad. They didn't do multiple and different ads or teasers back then. They just had one solid, like, two-minute ad. Um, which I have to say, Elizabeth Shue had a bit to do with crafting the trailer for Adventures of Babysitting. Hmm. She worked with uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg and the filmmakers and talked about kind of the marketing campaign. And um, there was a version, and I remember she gave some pretty strong notes, and uh, and it worked. It it didn't scare away boys. It wasn't. Oh, it's a girls' movie. It looks that's cool. It's fun. Okay, cool. It um, it uh, has that night gloss look. It was shot on a Panavision Platinum. Us and Inner Space were the first movies to get the Panavision Platinums. And it had all, I call it rolling thunder when a movie has all the trucks and cranes yeah. and shot makers and all that stuff that you need. Um, and uh, time and sets built and lots of shooting on location and night shooting. Night shooting is really expensive yeah. and tiresome. So the movie comes out and it does great. And then they expand the theaters and it makes more money the next weekend. And it's in theaters for t- at least 12 weeks. I mean, it was great. It had legs had a great video release and then hit cable and just played on cable forever. And then Blu-ray. And now it just uh, two weeks ago had its premiere on Disney plus it is the TV 13 rating. So we've looped over a couple of lines, but no scenes are cut. It's the same running time, but just don't fool with the babysitter. And Thor is a weirdo, a complete weirdo. (laughs) Other than that, it's the same movie. And I'm usually the, the biggest one against something like that. But, um, if that's what it took to get the film exposed to another generation and for parents to go, Ooh, I'm going to wait till a little older to show adventure of babysitting because of the language. It has some like seven of the deadly bad words you could say. Mm-hmm. But um, now with the kind of edited for TV version on Disney plus it's safe. <laughs> I still got scary. Got new guys with guns at the bus station, but whatever. <laughs> I always appreciated how dark it was for a kind of kids movie. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Them, them entering out into the world like that. Uh, how how long did it take uh, when the when you guys did the like the the blues club scene where you guys were singing? Was that how long did that take to shoot? Because I know music can complicate so, things. Typically, you on location you shoot Monday through Saturday, and you take a day off Sunday. On, on location, you could do six day work weeks. Um, but in this case, we were called in on Sunday to do um, record the song. And they'd had a temp version that they kind of played for us. Um, I think it was Michael Kamen's score. And uh, we get to the studio and Albert and the icebreakers are wrapping up recording 
the little blues that they were playing when we rush onto the stage. Mm. And they like banged it out in two takes. It was done. And then they moved on to the babysitting blues and it was written right in front of us. You see him writing all the licks and um, they recorded like a basic thing of the guys. They're separated. And, and I wish I remember because I'm kind of more appreciative of it now. Yeah. We did this in Chicago and it was supposedly some legendary blues recording studio Decca rec I don't know what record thingy it was, but supposedly it was legendary. And um they put a temporary mix together and on set the next day at Fitzgerald's, which was the pool hall in color of money that Paul Newman gave Tom Cruise the Balabushka. <laughs> That's the same set for really? the babysitting blues. Uh, we just removed the pool tables. Um it took two days to shoot. So Monday and Tuesday, and they had three cameras, one in the back on a dolly track, just kind of slowly going back and forth. And then, you know, crowd shots and around, and we did it. And um, Monica Devereaux, which was Chris Columbus's wife, you know, as soon as we reach Devereaux Street, you and your girls here are dead meat. Well, Monica <laughs> choreographed the opening song, and then he kissed me with Elizabeth at the top of it. She plays the runaway prostitute. Uh, when we run across on the river, when we see the runway, that's Monica. And then she also choreographed our like baby, baby dancing in the back. Yeah. We shot that in two days. Uh, so it was overall, it took three days. They shot 13,000 feet of film. Most films released or, you know, 10, 11 reels. They're about 11,500 feet of film. So we shot enough to put together a whole feature and it cuts down to that three and a half minute segment. And they even added uh, eight more bars because at the end of the song, the song ends. But we're kind of, you know, high-fiving as we're running out. So they just looped a little bit of the end. And if you listen really closely, you can hear the bars that are kind of repeated as we're running out the door. And then the bad guys are stopped. And nobody leaves this place without singing this blues. (laughs) I believe that the first live-action appearance of Thor was in that film. Even before the... uh... The Incredible Hulk TV movie that they made with him. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's Vincent D'Onofrio fresh off the set of, uh, well, six months after he wrapped Full Metal Jacket. Really? Did you get any good Kubrick stories by any Yeah. Oh. oh, I was all over him. I was like, tell me, what is that? Is it really like 100 takes? What? And he goes, well, he's not in the room with you. I said, what? <laughs> he goes, yeah, Kubrick's in another room on a monitor. He doesn't even, you'll get like walkie-talkie things. I'm like, really? He goes, he goes, an exaggeration about the takes. I'm like, oh, yes, if an actor doesn't know their lines, we're going to do 30 takes until they know their lines. I'm like, okay, good point. Um, he said it was great. He said it was, you know, and it's everything you want when you're like this talented theater actor and an, like a serious studier of method acting. And um, he's putting the same amount of commitment to playing Thor disguised as a garage mechanic Dawson as he did as Gomer Pyle. And so I appreciated that. He never broke character, really. He always was grim and rough and just would never smile. And uh, he made Maya, I know that Maya would do the close-ups and he'd look at her in the eye and she'd just kind of like crack up because it's so intense. (laughs) But she she went right there. She cried, really cried. And um, it works. I just love it. Uh, I see one mistake, though. Somebody hit a flag and there's a shot of the three of us sitting there looking at Thor and you see a, a shadow on us that kind of shakes. And I'm like, ah, somebody kicked a flag. But um, that had a Doberman sequence. When we first walked into Dawson's garage, 
in the script. On the day we showed up, we expected the first part of the day to be the Doberman sequence where we walk in and immediately you hear rah, 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 and chains and these three Dobermans come at us and just get stopped by the collars. And then we have to like find a way around them. Maybe Daryl had some snacks. I don't know how we got around them. And then we get to where Thor comes down. And uh, we get to the day and we go, where are the dogs? And Chris Columbus goes, yeah, we're not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and it was negative 80 degree wind chill in Chicago when we shot it. Um, we shot some of the exterior on Lower Wacker Drive, but Dawson's garage was just a regular, you know, single story garage structure out in the middle of Chicago. And they said the wind chill was negative 80 degrees that day. Oh. I'm like, that's not possible. But my eyelashes froze, leaving makeup trailer, walking 30 feet into the interior where we were shooting, and my eyelashes froze. So it was dang cold. Yikes. Damn. Damn. <laughs> yeah, Adventures and Babysitting is by far one of my favorite movies of my youth. I, I still watch it to this day. I mean, I can't get enough of it. I mean, everyone everyone in that movie from, you know, the stars to the, you know, uh, supporting characters. I mean, it, it, it was a beautiful little bit of cinema right there. I just loved it. Love that movie so much. A lot of awesome. people love that. Yeah, you know, yeah. my 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 mother and aunts all love it. You know that I, we bonded over that when it was just me, me and my mom and my aunts living in the house. You know that was one of their flicks. You know what I mean? You know, a beloved film. Oh yeah. You know that also was produced by the late great Deborah Hill. You know what I yep. mean? Who. You know, Deborah Hill and Linda Ope partnered for, I think, three films. Fisher King was one of the other ones of them. Um, Deborah Hill uh, had access to Halloween. So yes. we've got a bit of Halloween on the TV behind us. Yep. Although she couldn't use the sync sound rights. So she has two clips of Halloween and she swapped the sound on them so that one sound clip is playing over the wrong visual. And that's how she got around the visual sync license. Oh, <laughs> and then she goes, I own the film nice. so I can do it, but I don't own the audio synced with the video and then projected because that's a distributor that owns it. But she owns the master of the picture and she owns the master of the sound. She just can't put them together. So we got to put a little bit of John Carpenter soundtrack and the soundtrack and the visual of Halloween. And I didn't know how much, you know that Deborah Hill was the hand at the beginning of Halloween, the point of view in the mask, yes, when the hand comes up and stabs, that's Deborah Hill's hand. Yeah, she co-wrote yeah. it. She co-wrote. She like wrote all the dialogue for the for the babysitters and stuff like that. She's a, she plays a crucial part in that franchise, and it's so sad that she's not around anymore because she would be getting gigantic praise right now for it. You know what I mean? So it's sad. She still is getting gigantic praise for it. I love that everybody's yeah. familiar with Deborah. Her father is in Adventures in Babysitting. Oh, really? He plays the um, toll booth operator at the L train when we jump on the train and he goes, who's going to pay for those kids? Somebody better pay for those kids. That's Deborah Hill's dad. I love that's Linda a good Ope, one. Linda Opes had direct, um, produced Interstellar. Um, yes. Linda is in the French restaurant scene as an extra at a foreground table dining. And as soon as the kick happens, you can see her go like, oh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. But... Uh, they were amazing. Um, nobody even batted an eyelid because it was very male kind of dominated in Hollywood. Yeah. 
And uh, here we have this young director. And Chris was kind of upset because he he failed to beat Orson Welles' record of directing a movie at like 24 or 20. Yeah. I don't remember what it was, but it was like a year or two off. I'm like, Chris, relax. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Still like the youngest mainstream big budget movie director in modern history. Yeah. Uh, Wonder Kid. Absolutely, Absolutely Wonder Kid. Yeah, for sure. I know you compared, uh, people had comparisons to the John Hughes films, because I mean, at that time, anything teen or kid comedy of quality was being, you know, attached right to John Hughes. Did you ever get a chance to meet John Hughes? I mean, he's a king of the 80s, I feel, writer-wise, king. I auditioned for uh, 16 Candles and um, uh, for Farmer Ted, (laughs) the geek. (laughs) I never got a chance to meet John Hughes. That's a cool audition. That's a huge film. Yeah, John Hughes, man, way, but way gone, way before his time too. Rest in peace. Oh yeah, it's one of those things, man. It's unfortunate. Um, cousins, you did cousins, of course, with Joel Schumacher. We love Joel Schumacher. I uh, love cousins. You got any stories about the cousins, the making of cousins? Cousins was shot in Vancouver, um, and there's a note on IMDb that it was part of the. It, it inspired other filmmakers to use Vancouver as a film location because we used Horseshoe Bay and Stanley Park yeah. and the downtown area and just like shot the heck out of it. And to this day, I see sets. There's this particular like, country club set where we had one of the weddings and it's been showing up on stuff recently on Netflix series. So I'm like, oh, that's that club. <laughs> cousins. Um, and you had this cast. It was an ensemble cast where every single person could have been the lead. You had Norma Aleandro, who had just been in Gabby, a love story, Oscar nominated. You had Sean Young, William Peterson from yes. Manhunter and To Live and Die in L.A., a man's man. Ted <laughs> Danson. You had uh, Isabella Rossellini. By the way, David Lynch visited the set of Cousins. Oh. Nice. <laughs> How'd that go? I died that day. <laughs> um, and then the great late Lloyd Bridges yes. capping off this amazing cast. And Joel Schumacher was the most versatile. He can direct any genre. And he was like, I'm going to do a romantic comedy. No one's going to die of cancer in this one. Are you promise? <laughs> Dying young. I'm looking at you. He goes, no, no one's going to die of cancer. Okay, cool. And you know, it's funny. We have three weddings and a funeral in cousins. <laughs> <laughs> that title was taken. <laughs> oh, uh, Hallmark movies. There's the house that uh, George Coe dies at. George Coe, which was originally in the first season of Saturday Night Live. You remember him? Yeah, yeah. Um, he dies. I think he played one of the dads or whatever. So he has a heart attack. But at that house, that funeral house, is this house in Vancouver that, you know, it's beautiful. And it's got this huge green yard that looks out onto a lake. And they're like, walkies with boats in the back like sailing boats out of the lake i mean just obscenely beautiful location and i see that keep popping up on hallmark movies i'm like oh it's the cousin's house (laughs) um uh joel schumacher directed he didn't use a monitor and he didn't really look in camera he trusted ralph bode who shot um bring on the night the sting concert film Mm -hmm. of like dream of the blue turtles era and he was just a really, like, solid filmmaker. Like Rick Waite, who uh, was the director of photography for Adventures of Babysitting. 
It's kind of like everyone just gave him a lot of respect and gave him the time he needed to get every shot looking exactly like he wanted. And um, so Joel would lay a furniture pad under the camera. So here's the camera, and Joel is laying down underneath the lens, laying down like this, hmm. with just a big smile on his face. Maybe eating snacks, <laughs> definitely, you know, messages, whatever. He's just watching us. And, you know, we do a take, and he goes, oh, I love it. Do it again. Any notes? He goes, no, I'm just having fun. Do it again. I just want to see you guys do that again. He, and he would never, he'd go, that's it. You know, print, moving on. So, you know, nowadays they make movies and it's always, all right, cut. Let's go look at playback. And everybody comes off set and watches the dang thing. And the star is probably one of the producers, so they have a say. And um, he just had great instincts. And, and he wanted to really feel like you're spying on the family. Yeah. So they had a 600 millimeter lens they'd use. And they'd stick it. 100 feet across the stage would be the camera on a dolly. They'd fly a wall so they could get more distance in the set and then shoot with this 600 millimeter lens. And it feels like you're spying on the family from across the room. And he also would roll the B camera. Even if you're not in the shot, he'd have the B camera rolling and getting family and kids playing grandma falling asleep. That was the actress really falling asleep. And they go quick, quick, get a key light. All right, roll. And they, and just us setting up the lights, she started to wake up and that's what's on film. So you didn't know when you were being filmed or not. And you had to just play the whole scene. It kind of felt like we were shooting heaven's gate because he would just play the whole thing from beginning to end from each kind of angle. Um, those wedding scenes were a bear because we didn't just get generic extras. They cast the extras as families on each side. So one side is predominantly Italian American. Mm. And one side is predominantly Polish American. And they go, and when they introduce us, they don't have speaking lines, but they do because we're improvising. So they go, these are your cousins. These are your second cousins. These, and this one, you got this one. And then I love that you see like a romance in one and like a couple from across the families hooking up in the closet. In the second one, she's pregnant. And then in the third <laughs> wedding, it's their wedding. And she's getting married while she's pregnant. Um, yeah. So a lot of fun details in that building the universe of like big families and you kind of only see each other at these big, huge functions. It's tough to shoot big wedding scenes. Yeah. With a lot of people like that, that's definitely a big one. You know what I mean? And I had Mitchie who was obviously inspired by Evan Richards in down out in Beverly Hills. Um, in the original French film, Cousin Cassine, uh, Mitchie was a girl obsessed with death. So, Joel Schumacher changed it up by making Mitch a boy obsessed with sex and um, sex and death are really the same thing. And Joel Schumacher styled me head to toe. All of Mitchie's outfits were styled by Joel Schumacher, who of course used to be a costume designer and a production designer. And he designed my room too. My room has got, you know, my fridge has got all of my tapes and stuff in it. Um, I felt he was like, able to express himself through my character you know this like artist side of him and um, hands on i like that i like the hands-on directors hearing about that more you know what i mean getting into it. oh yeah and i love kubrick to death my favorite filmmaker of all time but hearing this thing about him sitting in the other room is like uh because i just learned um (laughs) dorian harwood i just (laughs) read the story did you know about this story on full metal jacket which one about Dorian Harwood 
who got terribly snipered in front of everybody in the third act. Remember, they're yeah. watching him just get snipered over and over again. Yeah. The shoot had run long, and Dorian had gone to um, Kubrick and said, you know, the production said, we're going long. Let's just pick up your contracts, and you'll get the same rate. We'll just keep paying you. And Dorian said, no, I want more. Oof. And Kubrick said, what? <laughs> he goes, no, if we continue, I want more than what we were getting. Like, I got stuff to do back in New York. And he goes, great, I'll let you do it. And for one week, he shot Dorian getting killed. And he said, I shot him for every day that he was getting short on his contract. <laughs> for every day, I put another squib in there. Every single, ah. And he just kept, he's like, come on, enough is enough. And they're like, nah, this looks great. We're just going to keep shooting <laughs> and shot for a week. Uh, I remember in Toy Soldiers, one of the terrorists had kind of upset the producers. Um, and so they did double loads of the yeah. squibs and kind of extra ones. And so when he gets shot on screen, it's particularly violent. Yeah. And they kind of did that as retribution. <laughs> Don't mess with the producers, man. Dude, Toy Soldiers, another great film. You know what I mean? Another kid's film. Like, it's kids, but it's dark. You know what I mean? You know, terrorists over overrun a school to get a judge's son. You know, and you guys going to save the day. Andrew Divoff, of course, magnificent from The Wishmaster and other films. Absolutely magnificent. Andrew is the greatest guy in the world. Yeah. We love him. And um, he has mentioned that playing Luis Cali was his favorite role. It looks like a lot of fun. His, he looks like he definitely has a lot of fun with that character. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. He uh, he liked to be uh, scary on set. I remember, not he wasn't upset, but there's a scene where he's lecturing to everybody and he's telling us the rules that if you're missing or do, then and if you touch the wires, they will explode. <laughs> and the first time we did that and filmed it, nobody knew that he was going to shout. And he went, they will explode. And the kids, everyone jumped. They're just like, oh my God, keep an eye on this guy. He's going to go nuts. <laughs> so when we did the second time, that surprise was gone. But he committed to the same. So I saw that, like, you know, I'm sure he hoped that there's probably reasons why they couldn't use the first take. The sound spiked too much when he yelled or something. They're like, okay, now we know what you're going to do. So he brought little surprises like that. He brought a, I love when he goes, he's beating Sean Astin. And he's talking to Will. He's talking about, you know, respect your father. I respect your father. Even if you don't respect your father. (laughs) And he's beating Sean Astin. He goes, well, this is what, you know, happened to me as a kid when I kind of would jag off a little bit. I would get beat. Bam! And he starts beating Sean Astin. Um, you kind of get a, like, it's not his fault he's a bad guy. He's just trying to free his dad from prison. No big deal. Yeah. You and Sean Astin ever talk about the Adams Family days with that connection? Yeah. I mean, you both have those great connections to the Adams Family. Yep. And so it was, you know, I've already known Sean. We'd had a production company. We'd done um, short films and me and Sean and Gabe Jarrett from uh, Real Genius. He played young Mitchie in Real Genius. Um, we were friends, fast friends. Gabe and Sean went to Crossroads. But because of Adam's family, and my grandfather loved Patty Duke. He thought Patty Duke was just the greatest thing in the world. John and our family, we're all friends. So I'd known Sean since we were single-digit age growing up. As a matter of fact, I had auditioned for Please Don't Beat Me, Mom, which was... Anna's directorial like movie of the week Patty Duke was directing this and I was going to go up for the kid and I'd already done battered with Mike Farrell so I was like I'm good at like 
spattered movies. And Sean got it. And he goes, well, my mom was directing. I was kind of a lock. And I'm like, okay, I get that. <laughs> and, uh, but he, he was very upset because I did an episode of Chips that his dad directed. Oh. <laughs> He's like, I really wanted to get on that Chips movie. I'm like, shut up, Rudy. <laughs> I know. Classic Rudy. And I did yeah. audition for Samwise Gamgee. I shot a screen test standing, uh, kneeling over the body of Frodo and getting the ring and crying in old English accent. Didn't get it. But I had worked with Robert Shea, directed Book of Love. And yeah. so I was actually seriously, because New Line had done, um, you know, gotten that loan to do the three movies. So um, I get this breakdown. And it's got all the characters, Aragon, all these characters. And they're like, shoots for six months or nine or a year in New Zealand. And I'm like, what? You're going to make three huge side, you know, fantasy movies in six months? No, this is, this is the most absurd. It felt like a Robert Homme senior movie. Like, um, didn't Ted Danson do a Gulliver's Travels? Yeah, he did. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he did. Robert Homme Sr. and Robert Homme Jr. were experts at making these vast, globe-trotting, huge cast movies because he knew all the payoffs and graphs for each and every little country that they would shoot in Europe, basically. He was the master at getting deals around the globe. So he could make these huge spectacle movies. Anyway, it felt like something like that to me. <laughs> <laughs> we have quite possibly maybe my favorite character that you've ever done. From Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. You know what I mean? It's the greatest, dude. It doesn't get no better. You know what I mean? The Kenny character is fantastic. I love him. My favorite, quite possibly, next to Cheech and Chong, my favorite stoners of all time. Nice. I appreciate that. I I mean, that's a really big bar. Yeah. Um, Because I did, I asked Kevin Smith if I could be in Reboot. He put me in Reboot. Yes. And he was really nice. He gave me some great, you know, a shout out and and the quote and like Hemsworth saying, dishes are done, man. I'm like, okay. Kevin Smith was awesome. Yeah. He's very good to Keith Coogan. Um, But, uh, oh God, where were we? Stoner. Kenny the Stoner talk. So we're (laughs) in the premiere. And of course, Strong is in Reboot. And he's great in reboot. He improvised the, you know, I gave a $20 bill to a dog once. It didn't work out. (laughs) (laughs) He improvised that. So I'm sitting at the premiere and I'm next to Donnell Rawlings and I'm behind Chris Jericho. And I'm like, right behind me is Chong. And I'm like, man, I mean, I used to live in Malibu down the street from Lou Adler who produced Cheech and Chong. And I'm like, I know these guys. Um, Cheech, you know, was around all the time in Malibu of the like crazy people in Malibu and so the Gary Buseys and stuff like that. Yeah. And um, I turn to him and I go, Hey, uh, Mr. Strong. And I, I knew Ray Dawn. I was friends with Ray Dawn. So I, I just turned to him. And I, I just said, hi, I'm Keith Coogan. I, you know, great, great to see you and everything. I go, by the way, I also, you know, because of you, that's a genre, but I also have like a stoner role. And he goes, ah, oh, that's great. Good for you. There was no, you know, obviously he's not going to know who the hell I am or who Kenny was, but I had my chance and I just totally blew it. It happens. We're, we're trying I'm to like get him you. on the show. I'm just like you. No, kid, you're not. You know. <laughs> but thank you. I appreciate that. He's totally, you know, Spicoli meets Bill and Ted. As a matter of fact, Steve Herrick directed 
um, Bill and Ted and Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. So we instantly had now for Bill and Ted, they couldn't overtly say they were stoners. Right. Never showed a bong. You don't show them smoke yeah. and they don't talk about it. They act like it, but they act like surfer dude. Yeah. In the mm-hmm. 80s, there was like really no difference between like a surfer dude or like a stoner dude. So Kenny is really a lot of that with a little Spicoli thrown in there. <laughs> and here's the thing about Spicoli. Um, Sean Penn is a very serious kind of method actor. He definitely loves to do his research. I've seen in interviews where he goes, you know, I knew guys like Spicoli in Malibu because he grew up in Malibu. And um, well, <laughs> I live next door to a guy named Fro Gardenier. And Fro would take his shirts and wear them on his head like this. <laughs> it's Fro, right? And he talks like that. He's like, yeah, man, sign it, some, some briz, some killer buds, and some waves, and I'm fine. So I believe I live next door to one of the inspirations for Spicoli. So here I am copying Sean Penn's copy of one of my neighbors growing up and then throw in a little bit of, you know, Oh, and I remember I was on set. I didn't know what troglodyte meant and I'm doing my walk and I'm doing a thing. And a Stephen Harris goes, no troglodyte. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. He's a caveman. I'm like, okay, got it. So I'm hungry. Eat. <laughs> it was very fun to be selfish. No, I mean, I'm holding up at lizards. This is a crock. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't give a damn about anybody. And what I loved about Kenny is his redemptive arc. He gives up the weed. He finds a trade. He apply. He cleans himself up. He changes his name. He goes through an entire metamorphosis. And presumably he's going to get the girl and have a future. And um, that, <laughs> believe it or not, and I've done battered and question of love and these like movies of the week and after school specials that tackled censorship or McCarthyism or like, um, um, really serious subjects. But the number of people that have come up to me and said, Hey, I was like a layabout and like totally just got Kenny. And like, so I went to culinary school and now I'm a five-star chef, a resort in Miami. This isn't a singular time. I have been approached several times at conventions. I've gotten emails, letters from fans. Dozens of people actually did a Kenny and learned cooking, and now that's their trick. So I didn't <laughs> think that Don't Tell Mom was going to be the movie that actually affected most people's lives as much as it did. <laughs> they go, Don't Tell My Drug Dealer, I don't need him no more. <laughs> I like that. That's cool. That's that's a positive thing. I mean, you you know... That's great that you get those stories. The fans come up and tell you that. That's awesome because you're making a bigger impact than just entertainment at that point. You know what I mean? Which Who knew? The more, most Who knew important, at all? Most important thing any of us can do is try and make someone's life for the better. You know what I mean? Up it a little bit. So that's awesome, man. Come I think as well, I think Christina Applegate was a great um, example for young women. There's no yeah. glass ceiling. You can own a company. You can be creative. You can um, you can own it. At the end, she fesses up, and they're like, "That's okay." They praised me for hiring a teenager for market perspective. Honestly, um, yeah. there you can get it together and clean up the house and take care of the kids and like be a better mom than mom is. And so it was a you know what do they call it? A teen wish fulfillment fantasy you know movie. Yeah. Um, and most of the movies at the time, parents left town, everything fell apart. Oh right. my, what a disaster. And oh, the parents are gone. 
And so the writers were very, very to the point. They go, actually, what if we did a movie where the parents leave town and the kids get their shit together? Yeah, I never thought about how ahead of its time it is with that like single mother type aspect. Oh, and she gets sexually harassed at work. Yeah, she gets ignored for being a woman, mm. um, and she gets to kind of put them in their place. Look, Bruce, when I have those numbers done, I'll go ahead and uh, you know fetch you. They have to run up and fetch them. Yeah. Um, I love that uh, there's women supporting women. You got Rose. I'm right on top of that, Rose. Joanna Cassidy in, you know, arguably I one of my favorite roles of Joanna Cassidy. And I, I mean, when you could choose between Blade Runner and Who Framed Roger Rabbit or, you know, and she says that she's most approached with people coming up and going, I'm right on top of that, Rose. She's thousands of people have come up to her. She goes, it's the most she's talked about. Most the role that everybody loves is Rose Lindsay. Yeah. And it was a big risk. She's, you know, she really laughs like that, by the way. You'd know when Joanna Cassidy was on the set because you'd hear <laughs> the snorting. And you're like, Joanna's here. Yeah. And she does. And we were in make hair and makeup together early because we both had wigs. So I had this like hand laced, you know, wig. And she had, Rose Lindsay had wigs. So we'd get in hair and makeup early in the morning. Hey, how you doing, Joanna? What's up? Good morning. Hey, how you doing? drinking our coffee or whatever. And then like a half an hour later, Christina would show up for her makeup. <laughs> <laughs> that character is a great, it's a great character because there are moments where like, uh, I feel like her likable level goes up and down. Great performance. But I think there's almost parts where you're not supposed to like her as much as, as you do type deal. You know what I mean? Yeah. You don't really trust her. I think this yeah. part. And, and she is that kind of threat of, is she going to get caught with thousands of dollars of petty cash missing? Would yeah. Rose Lizzie come down on her? And um, her cover was brilliant. Ice, bodacious ice sculptures, DJ services, party lights. And, and it's like, it's all the crap that me and Skull and Lizard and Hellhound had <laughs> sitting in one of our garages. Yeah. But to be able to bill it back to GAW, that's genius. Yeah. Dishes are done, man. You know Stuff, what I mean? Creole mushroom, boss lady. Dishes are done, man. <laughs> I love, I love, when the babysitter dies just by looking at the pictures on your wall, that makes me laugh so hard. I agree. I, I think Kenny's room killed the babysitter for yeah. sure. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> the teeth, ch- the teeth chattering. <laughs> with the naked I, wouldn't even, I never met her. And later we drop her off at the mortuary and she goes, you know, God, you know, she was so nice and everything. And I go, yeah, she was a great babysitter. I left the house before she even showed up and I never saw her alive. So in essence, she was, she was a great babysitter. She was a great, exactly. <laughs> we left her money on our babysitter. We'll go get it from the old hag. Every <laughs> line, every other line in that movie. I mean, literally there are five absolutely quotable priceless lines. Um, what about donating blood? You have to be 18. What about dad? Dad doesn't care. I mean, there's just, and they're, they drive by so fast in the dialogue. What if we hack off her head? You know, <laughs> go get the tape measure thingy. Shut up. You're not my babysitter. That's right. The babysitter's dead. Now go get it. <laughs> did you have any, uh, did you get a chance to meet uh, the, the young David Duchovny? What's that? A young David Duchovny? See, this is so great because David, um, so for the first week of shooting, uh, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, they were using a um, warehouse in the valley, kind of in Glendale area, Burbank. 
and it was um they built the interior of the GAW offices, the lobby, the elevators, the reception desk, Rose Lindsay's office, Gus's office. You know, they basically built like a little one floor of the, and they had backdrops out the windows and stuff like that. And um, I'm on contract for the film. So it doesn't matter whether it work one day or every day, it's the same amount of money. So I said, hey, um, I know there's scenes. I noticed you're going to shoot the phone scene a couple of phone scenes with Kenny where Swell is yelling at Kenny, you know, Hey, we're almost out of shirt, whatever, you know, what, what do you want? Um, and I said, I can come to the set and be off camera. Cause I know how frustrating it is to read with it. a script group. Resident are great, but they're always like, Hey, we are out of shrimp. Can you get more? <laughs> so like, I'll, and also um, as an actor, you want to protect your timing yeah. and protect your choices. And I want to be involved in that. I don't want someone else making a call. Oh, he went really big and yelled really fast here. And so she's reacting that way. And I go, no, I kind of want to be involved. So I said, I'll come down. And I set up a little honey wagon for me. And so it was cool. So I just came down and kind of hung out on set, watched a little bit. And then I did the off-camera parts. At lunch, we get an hour for lunch. And I grab and I go. And I'm on my way to my little, you know, honey wagon. And David comes up. And he goes, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? I'm like, sure. He starts grilling me. He goes, how do you get a good agent? How do you get better parts? How do you prepare? How do you, whatever it is. And I'm like, oh, sure. So I sit on the steps of my trailer with David in front of me and I'm just eating. And I tell, I'm always like, try it. I'm I'm not one of those that's like, Hollywood is closed. Don't come. I'm like, (laughs) no, who knows who could be discovered? Anybody could do this. Um, I truly, I think, I do believe anybody could act. Um, So Dave's grilling me and I just told him, you know, the work it takes and what you look for in an agent and all this other stuff. And I remember reading like a half a year after that, I remember reading for Red Shoe Diaries. Yes. Obviously I'm wrong for it, completely wrong for it. And David gets it. And of course it's a huge hit and, uh, you know, then X-Files and everything like that. And I've never run into David since then, <laughs> but I want to know if he remembers the hour I gave him of career advice and because I don't know if he followed it or went, actually, he's full of shit. I'm not going to follow anything he said and then became a success. Or did he go, oh, and I had that conversation with one other young actress in our Malibu community. There was like this house party and my mom's into real estate and stuff. So she's like, we're going to go over there and talk to the neighbors and stuff. So we're there and hanging out. And someone said, oh, I have a little niece that's in town. She's, you know, maybe from New York or something. And she's interested in being an actress. Would you talk to her? I talked to her for a while. I'm like, yeah, you do this in Asian. Do, do as much as you can theater and this and learning and headshots and like explain the whole thing. Um, and it was Denise Hux, Huxtable. Oh. <laughs> What's her name? Um, uh, 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 Angel Heart. Yeah. Oh. Um, is it Tori? Uh, no. Um, she's married to um, Aquaman. Lenny Kravitz. Aquaman now. I think she's married oh, to Aquaman right, now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I her, uh, t- is it Tony? I, I can, yeah. But yeah. No, um, anyway, but yeah, yeah. I, I've uh, given that same speech I gave to David to other. Uh, um, I can't remember her name now. Is it Regina totally something? No, no. Uh, Cosby Show, the oldest daughter. Yeah, I'm trying to. Oh God! I, so, I mean, I, after I Angel remember. Heart, she basically got blacklisted by Hollywood. I heard Bill, Bill, Mr. Cosby didn't like her doing Angel Heart because it was so like dark from the Cosby show. Mm. I think that's what Epiphany? Was- you mean a man having sex with his own daughter in a satanic sex ritual while blood <laughs> drips from the ceiling? Cosby yeah. wasn't down for that? Hmm, interesting. 
He couldn't <laughs> admit it yet. He wasn't able to admit it yet. But, <laughs> yeah. I also, speaking of horrors, <laughs> I yes. my, my favorite, one of my favorite, maybe my favorite Tales from the Crypt episode ever. House of yes. Horrors. I love that episode. You know yes. I mean? Fantastic. We, you know, so great. We had Bob Gale Jr. directing, and I actually had him sign a copy of 1941. I had a graphic novelization of 1941. I'm like, sign it. Yeah. Um, huge fan. He's incredibly subversive. I'm going to do it my way and screw everybody else. Um, <laughs> and he's just getting you know, sick. It's fun. He's a good sick, but he knows how to, to get that in there. Yeah. Um, we were shooting an episode. There was a thing in um, Culver City, a warehouse that they use for stages. And we were there for either costume fittings or something. So most of the cast was like Brian Krause, Courtney Gaines, Will Wheaton, uh, DeLuise, um, London, one of the London brothers, yes. Meredith Salinger. Amazing cast. Uh, and Kevin Dillon. Yep. And we get there and Billy Zane is in a full cape around craft service. And he's doing like all these moves with his cape. <laughs> he was shooting his episode the week before us, so we oh, okay. were on, and they had the same mansion set that they used for, you know, the Crypt Keepers Mansion or whatever. Yeah, they were had redressed it for Billy Zane's episode, and then they were going to redress it for our episode. It was this standing really? that it could kind of be anything, and then off to the side of the set was the Crypt and the Crypt Keeper and the puppet and everything. That was awesome. <laughs> that is cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I love it. They, they, you know, it's like a college. They, they, you meet up with some girls in this haunted house type. By the way, thing. do you know what the haunted house is famous for? Is that was that the Psycho House or no, or Changling House or something? Nothing but trouble. Nothing it's but trouble. On the oh, it's with, uh, oh no, nothing but trouble. Dan Aykroyd's and, nothing but trouble. Yep, it was built for it, and it stayed standing. It's right near Magic Mountain in Los Angeles, which is about forty miles north of L.A. And that set was deteriorated and we had to crawl up in the catwalks behind it and you could see through it. So we had to do it at night. I mean, it was going to be at night, but during the day you could see all the cracks in the facade because it was such a rundown set, but that whole front area where the car graveyard and nothing but trouble was and all that, that has been used in critters, maybe critters too. That little house in critters was, I think Scott Grimes's house. And in Critters, but in us, it was the frat house where we had us um, cleaning the floors with our toothbrushes and our yeah. underwear. There's I a lot think, of scenes of me and Will Wheaton in our underwear, and I don't know how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> I think that junkyard was in Nightmare on Elm Street uh, 3 as well. I think we had some yeah. show once that told us that. Courtney Gaines is a friend of the show. We did a movie with him years ago. I love Courtney. He's absolutely great. Really yeah. sweet guy. Um you know, he just handles it all so well. You shit on my house! He's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, the Burbs, classic, the Burbs. Another gentleman, oh, Corey, uh, Corey Feldman and the Burbs, you guys are cool, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one of my first jobs was being a hand, hand model on a Mattel commercial, and it was Corey's commercial. But while he's off at school or taking a break, they would have me do the close-ups playing with this, like, model train or something like that. Plus, maybe Fisher-Price or something. Yeah. And then we did uh, The Kid with the Broken Halo together, uh, which was a uh, Gary Coleman, uh, Bob Guillaume movie of the week. 
Yeah. Uh, and then we did the Oscars together. We also were the voice of the fox and the hound. I co-starred in uh, Tale of Two Corys and yeah. um, also took part in his uh, documentary. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I love Corey. Totally support him. We went and saw the first show. You know, my wife saw the first show of his tour and the last show of his tour here in L.A. Um, and um, it, uh, it's interesting for me because I always waffle between nobody knows who the fuck I am or people <laughs> going, no, you're Keith Coogan. I'm like, that means something to some people, but to others. Yeah. So for Corey, I think that there's a lot more people that know who Corey is. You just yeah. look up the numbers and the followers and the search results. And you're like, well, you know, he's obviously been in much higher profile films <laughs> and also had some controversy in his career and life and a uh, great biography. You get a chance to read choreography. Yeah. You go read it in one sitting. Cause once you start, you go, oh, you'll, yeah. will not be able to put it down. And I congratulated him on. His candor. I'm like, I can't believe you talked about all this stuff. So if anyone thinks that Corey still has something, he's like, I don't know, read his book and then you'll get a very clear clear picture. I just love him. I love him dearly. We love Corey too. You know, people say, you know, people say weird things, but we love Corey, man. We grew up with him. Uh, You did Life 101 with Corey Haim, the late great, rest in peace. You came real close with him. What was it like? like running with that crowd in that time? You know what I mean? That was like the crowd to be with. Well, I didn't. Uh, I wasn't hot enough to run with the crowd. I'd walk, we'll say them. walk with the crowd then. I'd be at the place already. <laughs> he sauntered with the crowd, <laughs> fashionably late, and it would be like yeah. the Corys are here. You know, oh, yeah. the Corys are here. But I had, and I had definitely direct competition with Christian Slater and River Phoenix. Yeah. I was going up for a lot. Like I went up for um, True Romance. I went up for uh, Mosquito Coast. And uh, so there, were, I wanted to be on that kind of serious actor thing. But then I realized my jam is comedy and silly comedies and being the funny guy and stealing the picture. I was yeah. like, I actually had rather make a living doing that. So um, uh, I ran with, I had Jake Busey and Gabe Jarrett were two of my best friends growing right. up. Yep. And there it's not a big deal. Your dad has an Oscar nomination. I'm not going to really worry about my Knight Rider episode. It doesn't affect my relationship. Gabe's dad is Jeremy Grove, Joe Cronsberg. So Gabe Jarrett, the little kid from Real Genius, his dad is Jeremy Joe Cronsberg, who wrote Every Which Way But Loose and directed <laughs> Going Ape, the godfather of ape movies, yeah. of orangutan movies. I'm asking you, Gabe has a cameo at the beginning of Going Ape. He's a little boy at funeral at the very beginning. <laughs> <laughs> so... Nobody gave a crap. Your yeah. neighbors are Catherine Bach, Burgess Meredith, Larry Hagman. You know, there's no, um, I had one of the writers from not necessarily the news that lived on our street. That I was more blown away by that. I'm like, he writes for no, not necessarily the news. Yeah. Um, we had the first AD from the Sting, Jack Kehoe. Um, I, I just was, uh, oh, I lived next door to Nick McLean, who was the cameraman on Close Encounters and Spaceballs and, so that is something you don't, you just talk about like, how's it going? Yeah. What's, how's the family? Yeah. Did you see the game? <laughs> because industry to industry, that's just the rule. You just don't talk about the industry. <laughs> 
That's cool because me and me and Alex over here, we we started this show mainly because like we're Massachusetts kids and we're not like in one of the big cities doing it. So it's not like we can ever bump into somebody cool like yourself at a coffee shop and get like a conversation going. This is our way of being. This is our. We should have called this show the coffee shop. This is our way of like you know being able to talk to the people that we love and respect in the in the field. You know, but I can understand them not wanting to talk shop when you're just you know grilling or taking out the trash. You know what I mean? Everybody's on the same page. Yeah, nobody gives a damn when you can see share at the supermarket. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's true. You got any cool stories with Corey Haim about making Life 101? Yeah, he's, uh, I had, you know, always been in all his career. I had auditioned for Lucas, and I thought he was phenomenally talented. I think he was, you know, between him and, and River Phoenix, uh, maybe Heath Ledger, probably one of the most talented in the industry. Yeah. But I think that like Corey and myself, even Scott Grimes, we're inoculated. We have family in the business. We have family that has a healthy relationship with the business. It's like it's just the business. Yeah. You know? it, it, that's that's a, a part of your life, it's not your whole life. So um Yeah, I'm sorry. Where were we? <laughs> Good stories about Mr. Haim. Oh, Haim. So <laughs> I always try to get in his circle and just a rumor that he's going to be at Ed DeBet or, you know, at uh, Johnny Rockets. And I had made friends with um, the Zappas. So I was friends with Ahmet and uh, Lala, their cousin, Lala Slopin. Um, and uh, you'd see Dweezil and Moon yeah. Unit and Diva and Gail. And occasionally Frank would crawl up and uh, you'd, you'd I got to play Frank Zappa's piano, but that group included a lot of really cool people like Adam Horowitz and like Keith Moon's daughter and like cool people that they didn't give any fucks. Yeah. They didn't, they didn't care about career or money. I'm like, well, you have money, so you really don't care about money, but they didn't, they just did their art and they're like, yeah. I don't care. I want a reaction. And I'm like, that's, I'm always in fear of like losing a career with Disney. So I'm like yeah. always kind of want to be mainstream with my, so it was interesting hanging out with like true artists. Mm. It just did not give. So anyway, Lala was dating Corey Haim for a while. And so just a rumor that she's going to go have lunch, you know, or meeting Corey. I'm like, I'm going to go. And it, I'd be at this end of the counter and Corey be at the very end with sunglasses and a trench coat. I'm like, he's so cool. Um, so I get life one-on-one and I'm like, and I was second choice. First choice was the other brother on Blossom. Not Joey? Right. Okay. And he had a <laughs> choice between doing Life 101 or writing for Conan O'Brien. He took the Conan O'Brien job. So they tore his picture off the wall, put my picture on the wall, <laughs> and I got it. And the cast director was like, you were always my first choice. I'm like, why wasn't I cast for it? Anyway. <laughs> exactly. Get it, we go. Um First day, it goes just downhill. We get on the plane, and Corey orders some rum and cokes, and uh, pulls out a Valium, breaks it, and goes, "Well, you know." And I'm like, "I can't now." Maybe flying, I'm a little anxious, so I take a quarter, <laughs> nip, a, like a flake off of it. I'm like, "Fine, drink it with a drink." So I wake up in Maryland, just pass out on the plane. We get picked up, and I'm like, "He'd have like three. We start shooting and there's a heat wave in Maryland. Um, seniors are dying up and down the coast. 
they have like a daily count on the TV. 130 seniors now dead. So it's just, it's, it's sweltering. It's humid. I'm not used to Maryland at all. We're shooting in Bowie, Maryland and Anne Arundel. And, uh, um, and Amy Dolenz, who's also Amy was in one of her first jobs was, uh, Silver Spoons episode that I was in with her. And my aunt taught Mickey how to play drums for monkeys because Mickey only played guitar. And they said, we have a guitar. Can you do drums? She's left-handed. So she taught Mickey how to play on her left-handed set. Anyway, it's a long story. Anyway, there's always everybody in Hollywood kind of does know everybody or someone was married to somebody's ex-husband, wife, whatever. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So came, uh, oh, Amy Dolan, Louis, Louis Mandalore. Mm -hmm. Um, Great freaking cast. And we're shooting a kind of 60s period piece kind of thing. So I got the bell bottoms and I got to rock my Rolling Stone tattoo. Technically, (laughs) Sticky Fingers came out like a year or two later, but they said that they'd seen proof of Sticky Fingers concept art before that. So technically, we could put it in the movie. This is the tattoo I got just before Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. Oh, yeah. Nice. It's it's really faded Rolling Stone's lips. The red seems to fade the most. Yeah. And um, we finished the shoot. And uh, Corey has no place to live. So he moves in with me in Santa Monica. And he stays with me, I want to say, two or three months on my couch. And uh, he's like having a hamster. I mean, now (laughs) it's been demystified. Now we're dealing with somebody who's incredibly shy, very talented, very, not neurotic, but very aware of like everybody's he's very empathetic and he's just very aware of everybody and he's probably one of the best i've ever seen with fans when a fan would come up to him he would just shut everything out and give them complete focus and really connect with them so i really learned that from Corey. um and uh yeah and and it, i i didn't know you know i lost touch with him i reconnected with him a few years later and it was just like we you know hadn't seen each other in like one day and um and he you know he was living with his mom and uh they were in hollywood at the time and um they were doing good you know i'm sure he was feeling offers and i know they were trying to get um license to fly off the ground i remember and then i know he left town he moved back to toronto with his dad and um and i was like well maybe that's good you know and now that's the thing Haim didn't wasn't inoculated Feldman was just by the fact that Feldman's dad played bass in a band and his sister was an actress. Boom. You're inoculated. There's kind of, you know, the family has a different relationship with the industry. Yeah. So I think if you are Brad Renfro or Corey Haim or river Phoenix, the fact that you're so raw and available emotionally might mean you don't have the scabby scars and scales to protect you from the industry part of it and the career part of it, the ups and downs, the intense love. And then the lack of that love, you tie your ego into your value as an artist. And that's going to destroy you psychologically. Inoculated, you go, I'll have a comeback. I'll keep working at it. All right. Maybe I need to sit down for a few years. I actually had a manager go five more years. I go, what? He goes, now nah, you you're on a timeout. Go, what do you mean timeout? He goes, you get three studio pictures come out one year. You need to sit it out for a while. And I go, hmm. I didn't even think I was overexposed. Yeah. Um, so uh, I got some of the best of Corey times. I really did. We'd go along 
Sunset Boulevard, bar to bar to bar, uh, picking up girls. <laughs> <laughs> He'd have a table waiting for him at every club. Yeah. They go, Mister Haim, right this way. The tits table in the center with the looking over. It was the you know the uh, wait. What was the character in Carlito's way? Uh, was Sean Penn's character. The um. No, the yeah, well, no, the other one, Benny, <laughs> Benny Blanco, Benny Blanco from the Bronx. Oh yeah, Benny Blanco, <laughs> the table man, yeah. old, like Benny Blanco, and but you know he never, and he would pick up any girl. They'd be with a date, and he'd go, "Hey, you want to hang out? Come here with me," and walk away with the girl. And the guy would stand there. What am I supposed to do with that? So he was did, very, very. Did, was um, there anybody that wanted to fight Mister Ham? I'm, I'm nope. sure. No, well, I'm gonna get mad at that. He's so charming. Well, he, he was to talk a nun out of her panties. I mean, he's just absolutely charming. He can convince you to do anything because he'll get Haim will get fixated on something. He goes, "No, this is what I want. This is what I want to do." Yeah. And he just, but we have to do this first. He just figure out a way to kind of. I've never had someone who was so. I don't want to say manipulative. Yeah. But I've never had someone who was so effective <laughs> at <Yeah>. um, <laughs> communicating their wants and needs, and then going after them immediately. Yeah. Yeah, he was the, he was something else. It was sad when I already passed. You know what I mean? Because I remember the, the 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 license to fly. I forgot all about that. So you just brought that up. They were trying to do a sequel to License to Drive, which would have been devastating. You know what I mean? I still think people still support those two enough that they probably could have crowdfunded something to get to get to get that movie done. I feel. You know what I mean? Rest in peace to Corey Amen. Yeah. Now you brought up. Um, Jay and Silent Bob's re- the reboot earlier. Yeah. Uh, we love Kevin Smith and Jay and Silent uh, Jay Muse. Uh, you know, we went to go, me and Alex up here went to, yeah. he did like a road show type thing for the release. Yeah, of- we went oh. to the road show and uh, they had the interview and it was a great experience. And seeing you there was, was a nice, yeah. nice cameo, a little cherry on the top of a, yeah. a very great Sunday to begin with. Yeah, for sure. How how'd that come about? You you know, Kevin Smith is kind of like almost the John Hughes of this generation in a way. With his right one of the greatest writers we have. How'd you guys come into contact? Uh my wife. Uh my wife uh wanted to get um pop pops from Goldberg's. Uh George Siegel's uh picture with George Siegel. He was getting yeah. a star on the Walk of Fame. And I had already seen Kevin well, I had one interaction with Kevin, and it was at Smod Castle in L.A. He used to have a Smod Castle on um, Santa Monica Boulevard, little theater, and uh, we have a little theater district, theater row. And um, I did an interview with Frog there, and then uh, went to a screening of The Shark is Still Working, the three-and-a-half-hour docu- great, great documentary. So afterwards, Kevin's in the lobby, and he's got a crowd around him three deep. Just talking to him, and he's, you know, and I'm across with my friend the room, and I'm looking over at Kevin, and I'm like, and then my friend's like, go up and say hi. And I'm like, nah, I'm not going to bother him. But I'm looking over, and I see this. Kevin looks up, and he looks at me, and he goes, and I lose my mind. I'm like, I just got a head nod. I just got a head nod. Kevin Smith, he looked, he looked at me, and he went like that, and I was like, I was so happy. So while my wife's Kevin spoke at George Siegel's star ceremony, because he's heavily involved with directing Goldberg's episodes, and, um, uh, she couldn't get George Siegel. He took off. But Kevin came to the rope and was talking to people. And so she got up to Kevin. She goes, oh, my husband loves you. Uh, she, you know, he even had a you know moment where he saw you, whatever. 
And he goes, who's your husband? She goes, Keith Coogan. He was in Don't Touch. He goes, I know exactly who Keith Coogan is. He goes, oh. Uh, He goes, dishes are done, man. And he (laughs) goes, yeah, I was watching movies longer before. I watched a lot of movies before I started making movies is basically what he said. And he said, anyone who was in a movie that I saw before I got into the industry, he sees is a different kind of like thing. He's like, oh my God, that's that. So she goes, well, you know, part of his speech at Star Ceremony was you got universe isn't a mind reader. You got to ask for what you want. (laughs) (laughs) And she goes, he's going to be at um, Fat Man and Beyond. And they're going to, or no, what's the one with Mark Bernadine? Um, Uh, uh, Hollywood. Hollywood Babylon. uh, No, 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 not with Mark, with uh, Garmin. So with Ralph Garmin, they're going to be at, uh, and Ralph Garmin is the greatest guy in the world. Yeah. They're going to be at the, you know, uh, comedy store and they're doing their podcast. So we go there and I had signed a dish, you know, dishes are done, man, to Kevin. And um, I'd written a three page scene of me and oh God, who was it? JD Quails, JD Qu- or yeah, Qualls, Qualls, yeah. um, trying to buy weed from Jay and Silent Bob in front of the, they're stranded <laughs> in LA in front of the Chinese theater in Hollywood. And, but they're only selling medicinal now. Yeah. And so JD Qualls doesn't have a, a 215 card and Bob is signing people in. They're like, no, it's medicinal weed. <laughs> and, uh, I have Bob hitting a vape because <laughs> he's given up smoking and Jay knocks it out of his hand. And he's like, what are you going to be drinking kale smoothies next? You <laughs> pussy. So Kevin, I'm sure never read the scene or anything, but he said, when I asked him, I go here, here's the plate. Here's the thing you know, nice to meet you finally and everything. And I said, Hey, I want to, I heard you're doing reboot. I go, I want to, I want to be in it. And without missing a beat, Kevin goes, you're in, you're in, you're in. I'm like, I've been in Hollywood a long time and I've had a lot of people make promises. And until you're on a mark on the set, actually until your second paycheck clears, you don't have the job. So, but he announces it. He does the podcast that and he goes, Hey, Ralph's going to be in it. Keith Coogan's in it. I come up on stage and I give like dish towels to Ralph and him. And he gets to the whole thing. He goes, it's been a weird week because it was the Harvey Weinstein scandal just broke. And his first four films are tied with Miramax. That night he said he is donating all of his residuals from those movies to women in film. He goes, the fastest way to fix the industry, get more women involved in the industry. So I'm going to get more women involved in the industry. And um, so I had to stay on top of it. Uh, you know, oh, it's in production. It's going, oh, he's got a script done. Oh, cool. My wife's like, maybe we should try to reconnect with him about now. Like, they're going into production. So we're going to go see him at the Alex Theater. It's the night he has his heart attack. We're going to see the nine o'clock show. So we're actually in our seats. And they're like, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Kevin's in the hospital. And we're like, oh my God. So some time goes by. I'm working at Sony Studios and I see calves jorts and cat mm-hmm. open exposed calves on a movie lot stepping outside of a soundstage door and then back in real quick and i go are those jorts so i walk over to the thingy and it's kevin he's directing goldberg's hey how you doing glad you're alive what's up and i'd already asked my agent i said hey i'm gonna be in reboot she goes yeah you are and i go no he said i could be in and she goes well have his production company call me and we'll contract and do the whole thing. I go, fool. And so have your people call my people. 
So I go to Kevin, I go, Hey, I don't know how to make it happen. Like, really? Like, you know, I don't have, I don't know what number. And he just grabs my phone, puts his number in it, gives it back to me. Just keep in touch. So another month or two by, and I hit him up on the day that contracts were going out. And I, you know, Liz gave me the contract and, um, he goes, you know, we don't have any money. So you gotta work as a local hire in New Orleans. And I'm like, I'm going to be in an autograph convention in Pensacola. It's 200 miles away. I'll drive over. And it all worked out. Um, and uh, I think I missed Ben by a day. Yeah. That was like the second to last day of shooting. And um, I filmed my bit. And it's with Diedrich Bader and Jay and uh, uh, Kevin. And um, I finished it. And I'm just, you know, I'm nervous. And I'm like, this would be a great opportunity. And I, we cut. We get over. And he's so great about introducing people. And when they roll, he'll go rolling. And... Let's hear it for Keith Coogan, everybody. Yeah, and the whole crowd goes nuts. And he goes, action. So you're going into a take with all this energy. I've never seen a director do that. So he raps. He just doesn't go picture rap on Keith Coogan. He goes, picture rap. Thanks for coming out. Da, da, da. I, I was blown away. So I get to him in this like kind of huddle because they're like breaking down the set. They're going to go shoot something else. And we, I look at him in the middle of it and I go, just please don't cut me out. Just <laughs> It just hurts so bad to be cut out. Not only did I not get cut out, but he name drops me, does the quote, and then has Chris Hemsworth say, dishes are done, man. I'm, I'm over the moon. Yeah. Um, and then sitting around at my job at Sony and get a text from Kevin, movie's done. Want to see it? <laughs> my wife works at Disney. I call her and I go, hey, Kevin, wants, when can we go over? Okay, so we arrange next night. We go over there and he goes, this is the first time I'm showing it to anybody. So me and Pinky were the first people basically to see it. That's awesome. Hey guys, I want your notes. What? Mm. <laughs> yeah, what do you think? What do you think? Now, there's two different levels of notes. There's, mm. oh, it was great. Or there's, you got to trim this in the second act. You got to move that and think, hey, was there a beat missing there? Da, 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 da. What's that running gag? Is that working? Is that not? And he's right on it with me. Because I know every reference of where he's pulling it from, and he knows every reference. So we're kind of like dialing that. And, and, and there was no green screen comp. It was a temp music score. It was four and a half minutes too long. <laughs> so he's got to cut four and a half minutes, and he's already cut out the KKK scene. I said, what? He goes, yeah, we had a KKK scene. And, and, and I go, you mean like busting loose? He said, yeah, like busting loose. He goes, it's an homage to busting loose. He goes, every road picture has to have a scene with the KKK. And I'm like, well, you're absolutely right. Why isn't it in the movie? He goes, running time. And I go, that's no. You need that in there. So I'm really <laughs> glad he got And if you watch it, that sequence is like two minutes. From the beginning of the construction site, seeing the girls tied up, to them, Jay throwing the joint in the thing, getting the porta potty and spreading shit all over the, the KKK guys. <laughs> That sequence is the tightest, quickest sequence, but you needed it. And then, yeah. and, and then, any, and then we talked about um, Hal Ashby, and we talked about being there, and the end, and Hooper, mm-hmm. and Smokey and the Bandit, and he's like, "Well, I'm going to do running bloopers over the credits," and we're like, "Yes, absolutely." He ma- managed to find a way to stick moments he had to kind of excise for the movie. And either messed with pacing or didn't really gel. He was able to put all those in the credits, so everything's in there. It's Word it's, uh, and it is one of his. It's one of his best movies, honestly. We were watching Mallrats the other day, and we're like, 
where's the heart? Where's the thing? That stuff with Jay and Harley Quinn, the father-daughter stuff, knowing the real story, knowing where Kevin is in his life, his relationship with his daughter, her coming out as being this terrific actress. Yeah. She's going to have a huge career. And to see Jay metamorphosis into another, you know, I, I don't know if you saw Ma- Madness to the Method or Method to his, Madness. His movie, I haven't caught it yet, but I do plan on seeing you gotta it. Watch. Yeah, yeah. You got to watch it. It's it's great. There's a great scene where early in within the first ten minutes where Jay goes over to Kevin's house. Yeah. And they shoot it in Kevin's house. <laughs> <laughs> and it's there's a point in the scene where you go, Are they playing characters? Are they talking to themselves as Jay and Silent Bob? Are they yeah. talking to themselves as Kevin and Jay? Is this like an honest moment on film? And the rest of it is of course and it's really funny. I mean, you have to watch Man. Yes, it was cheaply made. Yes, it's low budget. But there's plenty of funny low budget movies. Of course. Um, it does work. And it's so correct <laughs> on casting directors want to see you a certain way. Jay is in there reading for this like detective thing. And they go, oh, no, no, no. You're going to go up for the silly best friend. And he goes, no, but I've already prepared for like I thought I was going to be the lead. They're like, you're not going to be the lead. And so it's really interesting. It, there's a lot of truth in it. It's not just a silly picture. And there's amazing cameos. So it's on. Uh, and then you also, if you've seen Magnum Dopus, the making of Reboot. No. no. Is, it on the, is it on the Blu-ray? Yep. It's No, it's I, I, on I uh, Amazon Prime Free. Uh, I own the Blu-ray. Yeah. I don't know if it's, it might be on the Blu-ray. You know what? It might be on the Blu-ray. You, I don't you, so. you might be right. You might be right. I think it is on the Blu-ray. Yeah. Um one of the most beautifully shot behind the scenes I've ever seen. There's no manufactured conflict. It is literally just episodic of each week. And um, well, there was the ones they released on YouTube, which are great, but this is, it's one of the best shots uh, making of the director of that directed a feature just a few months ago in pandemic under coronavirus testing. And it co-stars Ralph Garman, Keith Coogan, David Beckner, (laughs) Harley Quinn Smith. Um, so I got another gig off of Reboot yeah. playing this officious newscaster guy. And uh, nice. Brian O'Halloran's in it. Hell yeah. Brian O'Halloran's a friend of And the I show. just did an episode in a series called On Our Own, co-starring Brian O'Halloran. So I'm now a part of the Viewisk universe. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> nice. Yeah, Kevin Smith is one of the best writers. You know, you know, he, he did like Chasing Amy. I think is one of the best written films of all time. Yeah, you know, and his, his there, there've always been life movies, but yeah, like they're the newer batch of movies, if you will. It's like more. It's like a different type of life where it's like a more realistic life. Like you take into Clerks Two, which I think Clerks Two is one of his best movies of all time. I like it more than the original. I love the original, but the friendship elements, the Clerks Two, are fucking incredible. You know what I mean? The way you yeah. weren't in love with Rosario Dawson before, you will fall in <laughs> love with her in Clerks Two. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Kevin has that ability to say raunchy stuff in one moment and like completely heartfelt stuff in the next moment and make it work. You know what I mean? Beautiful. Pussy troll? <laughs> exactly. Interspecies erotica? Yeah. <laughs> Clerks 2 is a classic. Love it, dude. Love it. Generous film. I love it. Uh, the soundtrack's great. Everything about that film's great. It's like, I think in the, in the overall, like, when they go back and look at his career, I think Clerks 2. I might even think it might be his best film because there's, there's so much to it, substance-wise, of emotion and just, you know, 
that dealing with life changes, but then it's that, that catch up. It's like anybody who's ever had like a close friend, which we all have. And like, as you grow up, you do, you know, you start to split, you know, and how they were going to get married and leave it. And there's that confrontation where you're losing your friend. They're going into a different place where they're going to be happy, but you're still losing your friend. You know what I mean? At the beginning of Clerks 2, I'm like, this is the last time they're going to ride into work together. Yeah. On the second time I watched it, I paid close attention to the dialogue in that scene. Yeah. It's really well written. Um, there's a lot of that in Mallrats. You have, hey, mm-hmm. we're about to get in the car and move across the country. You have it in uh, Clerks 2. Um, I feel like that must have been a moment in Kevin's life where he's dramatized that, dramatized yeah. that. I think that I think you know Clerks too. I know that Jay was kind of in a rough shape before Clerks too, so it very well could have been him looking at his losing his best friend, not to a wife, but to like you know the substance True. thing. You know, true. Um, yeah. uh, chasing Amy. I was told that because Kevin didn't used to smoke weed. Yeah. But I was told that the movie is true, but instead of a girl, it's weed. Interesting. And that it's true of it's true of Joey Lawrence Adams' relationship with Kevin, but they've swapped weed for the, I don't know. There was some biographical reason. <laughs> she goes, "You know what that movie's about?" Um, <laughs> it's funny. I was talking to her at an autograph convention years ago, and I didn't know at the time that I would be in reboot with her in the future. I was like, I will crawl into your movie universe one of these days. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. There's a lot of, I think there's a lot of weird love songs and all types of weird things to really reference drugs instead of the other person. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like all those fifties love songs, the sixties love songs where they're really singing their heart out. I think they're really singing about drugs. <laughs> I, I ruin every song with, for my wife because I know that every song is about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah. And so I'll go, you know, hold you in my arms. And I'm like, that's heroin. Uh, whatever term in the movie, you know, I go, oh, that's another term for this. Or, you know, yeah. um, everybody's got something to hide except me and my monkey. I'm like, monkey on your back. Monkey There's a heroin at it. <laughs> and she goes, thanks for ruining another song for me. <laughs> it's all about what it means to her, tell her. That's the yeah. key. You know what I mean? It, like, it's how, how it touches you. Yeah. <laughs> it's day. It's make up, make up. Um, oh, today. I want something else to get, to get me, me through, through this. this. Like that is about snorting. Ecstasy? No. Really? What is that about? It's 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 about a drug. I think it's doing crystal because he says I bumped again and I bumped again, took a hit that I was given, and I bumped again. And, I, yeah. and I, I'm like, this song is a drug song. Oh yeah. Beginning to end. Once you start listening to music, every song is a drug song. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Well, Keith, we had you for a gigantic amount of time here. Mm-hmm. We usually ask one question at the end. You know, me and Alex over here make films ourselves. We have a lot of people that make films and artists. Yes. Hmm? Uh, one uh, question. Yeah, one uh-huh. one last question. Okay. Uh, because so many artists, we always ask our, our cool guests like you, we say, you know, what advice would you have for an artist out there? Um, you know, there's so many ups and downs within the business and stuff. Do you have any advice to help people kind of get through ups and downs like that? Yeah, um, 
I have two pieces of advice. One for those just starting out as a filmmaker and one for those that have decided this is it and they're kind of in it. Um, as for the latter, if you're in it and like you said, it's, um, it's cyclical. Remember that it's a wheel. That wheel turns and you're going to have your up times and you're going to have your down times. And that's exactly the terminology my grandfather used. He says, you know, Hollywood, your success can be very cyclical. And he'd had a comeback, biggest child star at five years old, and then, you know, come back at 50. I am one year older than my grandfather when he played Uncle Fester. (laughs) But he's, you know, and, and America loves a comeback. We always love a second chapter. Um, we love those kinds of stories. So uh, my advice on the latter half about it being cyclical is you could fail. You could succeed. You can't guarantee success, but I can guarantee failure. Quit. See, that's really my advice. I can't guarantee you're going to be a success again, but I can guarantee that you won't stop doing it. So, and there's people, most people in the industry, you couldn't pull them away from it. It is oxygen. Now, as far as getting into it and starting out as a filmmaker or a writer or actor, I heard this great advice. Don't touch the fish. When you become a master sushi chef, there is an apprentice and a master situation and you learn your craft and it's five years before you make rice. Two years of learning how to wring a washcloth correctly. Too many filmmakers rush in and they go for the fish. They start cutting sushi. Well, you got to learn the basics first. So don't write a time travel epic short film. You make it two characters in a room talking. Can you record dialogue cleanly and edit and make a project, make it one minute long? Don't bite off more than you can chew. So as you're developing and everything, it, it takes a while, five years in, then they start to get in there and learn about making sushi. So when you start out, don't touch the fish. Keep it as basic, as simple as you can, and you'll have kind of more successes than obstacles and failures. I like that. That's good yeah, advice. That's really good. I'm speechless now. Now I'm speechless. I'm captivated. Well, well look you- at clerks. Clerks is a perfect example. Um, A modest setting, one room, um, you know, shoot on black and white. You don't have to worry about color temperatures uh, or the cost of of developing it. Um, Sounds okay. It's a very dialogue-driven movie and um, just feels like one mic in the room recording it, but it's fine. It works for that. Yeah. I know they spent like 100000 afterwards to get the sound mix and the uh, music rights added onto it. Yeah. But, um, and write what you know. I know a lot of people go, well, I'm a writer. I make the character an architect, make him a, you know, a, a novel writer or something. They're always doing something slightly off of the creative process. Yeah. Um, how many people want to watch a movie about filmmaking? Although we have great movies like And God Spoke and State in Maine and Stuntman. And there's a lot of great movies about making movies. Sweet Charity. Uh, or no, Sweet Liberty, Sweet Liberty. I love In God Spoke. I haven't heard that name in a long time. That's a classic. God Spoke is, is you know, it's along those lines of Spinal Tap. I think yeah. it's before Spinal Tap had become commoditized as this thing 
that in God's book was the closest to that kind of feeling yeah. of improvisational and, uh, and just ridiculous. Yeah. It's close to, there's an Aaron Sorkin play called hidden in this picture. And it's about a mad director that goes down to South America to film a world war one period war picture. And, uh, the whole play is just him trying to get this one shot <laughs> with the horizon and the tanks. And at one point, cows walk into the picture. And he's like, there weren't cows in this region. So this whole, there's a page of him going, cows, get those cows out of the shot. And so I always think of that when I think of period pieces and you know, difficult filming and um, cows. Sorry, that went on a tangent. <laughs> I like it. Well, yeah, write what you know. Write what you know. If you're a filmmaker, then fine. I think there are great, like, um, Living in Oblivion is the best movie about making lower budgeted movies. <laughs> Living in Oblivion? I've never seen that. I'll have to watch that. Yeah, Living in Oblivion is Steve Buscemi. Oh. And it's, it's, it, oh, it's also a, a, one of the first screen appearances of Peter Dinklage. Really? Yeah. Alex's yes. favorite, yeah. And Peter Dinklage, there's a dream sequence. And Buscemi is this obsessed, you know, black hat director wearing kind of guy, such an artist. Yeah. And um Catherine Keener's in it. She's fantastic. They um they have a whole thing where somebody has the headsets on, but they can overhear what the director is saying to each actor. And he goes to the one guy who's supposed to be um, Brad Pitt, he goes, Yeah, it's all her fault. She's, you know, and then he goes to her and she goes, It's all him. So she overhears him saying it to him, but there's a dream sequence. And in it, it's like this blue clouded room. And um, he's supposed to be standing in the room and Peter Dinklage in this like blue suit walks around him and then holds up an apple. And they bring Peter Dinklage on set and he goes, why does it have to be a dwarf? I go, what? What are you talking about? He goes, what is it just, it's weird. It's a dream. So, oh, let's cast a dwarf. So it'll be weird. And he bitterly does the take in it. And it's, uh, <laughs> oh, and they have the scene of Catherine Keener where they're shooting a crying scene where they're slowly dollying in. And it's a scene between her and her mom talking about molestation and the father knew and the mother knew, like you knew and you didn't do anything and she's crying and they're pushing in and you're in with it. Whenever they're looking through the camera in the movie, it's color, but then outside it's black and white. But if they're shooting black and white in the movie, then it's color behind this so they always you always know when you're looking through the camera and when you're not yeah. so you're you're pushing in and all of a sudden you'd see the, the boom mic come in and it was the most oh first they go let's just rehearse and she crushes it Catherine keener cries and it's a, the whole crew was like we should have been filming that they go to film it and the boom mic comes in they go to film it somebody's cell phone goes off they go to film it a camera has a problem <laughs> and you just you feel the frustration of like making a movie it's so great and then like the biggest success the boom guy winds up handing a script to somebody and he becomes a producer at the end it's so great <laughs> life imitating art that's how we do it yeah keith it was an absolute pleasure having you on this show dude we we appreciate your time great stories this might be our best episode to date alex i have to agree with you on that i mean the, oh, yeah just everything you talked about the insights i mean your experiences, I mean, it, it was a real honor to just, you know, listen about yeah. all these things that you've experienced, the people you worked with. I mean, 
it was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for uh, the great questions and uh, hey. covering some 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 B cuts. I do appreciate covering some of the deeper cuts, like we cousins. like the deep cuts. Yeah, yeah. I don't get to talk about cousins a lot, so I appreciate yeah. that. And uh, yeah, man. Thanks, guys. Yeah, take care. Be safe. And you uh, too, man. Being, we'll be you know, we'll be show. in touch. Ever want to come back on the show? Would always love to have you. You know what I mean. We'll be supporting. From, we'll be supporting from afar. You're going to be the next Kevin Smith movie. I heard Clerks Three. You know what I mean? Huh? Am I? I don't know. You're going to be the third clerk. I'm going to give it clerk. a pause. Let him do Mall Rats, and then I'll hit him up the next movie. All right, fair enough. You know but what I, I know half of the cast of these movies, like like I know Shannon and and um, London. So I feel like I could just call them and go, "Are you on set?" Yeah, where are you guys filming? Okay, and I'll go down and I'll just walk in the background of a shot and be like, "Oh God, yeah." <laughs> Kevin will be like, "Oh, that fucker." <laughs> it's awesome. Thanks again, man. I really appreciate. It. Tell Pinky we said hello. You got Pinky. They say hello. Hi. Hey. <laughs> you guys have a great afternoon, great Sunday over there, and uh, I'll talk to you soon, Keith. All right, man. Rock on and. Uh, Nobody leaves this place without singing the blues. Okay. Hell yeah. <laughs> Dishes are done, man. <laughs> I have to say that. I'm contractually obligated to say that. That's true. And we thank you for doing it. Thanks, we, guys. Thank you. With thank that being said, we'll you. catch everybody on the next episode of the Boombastic Cast. And for autographed dishes, visit KeithCooganOnline.com. Talk to you later. Hell yeah. <laughs> KeithCogan.com. Check it out. Support Keith. Support the show. Support yourselves. Everybody be happy. We'll talk to y'all later. Fuck on. See you guys.